Welcome to Starboard Vineyard Tours, a podcast about science fiction studies. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. Uh, and today we are talking about uh, Colonialism and the Emergence of Science Fiction by John Ryder. Yep. It's a, I believe, 2001. Sorry, I realized that. 2008. Yeah, I misread that. I was looking at it and I misread it. Oh, you oh, misread yes. the number eight? <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's in the very small print in the... Uh, publication info at the front of the book. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also got an epigraph, which is uh, from the preface to the German edition of Capital by Marx, uh, which is, the country that is more developed industrially only shows, to the less developed, the image of its own future. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, um, really interesting book. Yeah, I found it interesting as well. I think that it does a number of interesting things. I think it's a really good critical history of a certain uh, period in science fiction, which is primarily Victorian science fiction, uh, which is to say stuff that, uh, before the, the name science fiction is developed, uh, before uh, the development really of a dedicated particular readership for that as a genre, this is like the Wells and Verne era, and we see quite a bit of them up through the pulps uh, to like, basically, um, it doesn't touch more than a little on post-World War II science fiction. Yeah, it's it's like roughly, um, I, I would say roughly 1870 to 1930 uh, is the limit. Yeah. yeah, I think um, that's reasonably speaking the period that it's uh, calling the emergence of science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's about colonialism. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> and, and essentially, like, the ways that... Uh, you know, colonial narratives, colonial ideologic ideology um, structures science fiction. Yes, it's it's in an interesting place, and I've been thinking a lot about the the methodology here and the way it uh, positions itself relative to other methodologies of science fiction studies, because that's a pretty substantial part of the introduction. I mean, as you'd expect, you know, methodological stuff. But also, and this is a very, like, academic book. This is a, uh, I mean, it's the kind of academic book that has an introduction where it explains its methodology, and then each of the chapters is a case study in which it talks about one to three uh, major works and a few minor works. It is shaped the exact same way as my dissertation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it very much has that uh, typical kind of... Um... Typical, like, 21st century academic book structure. Yes, it's it's very much of that type, which is not a bad thing. I think it's a perfectly, uh, perfectly fine structure. Um, I think, you know, and there's other works that we have uh, are planning to cover that do a very similar uh, organization as well. Uh, this also means that it comes in relatively light in terms of size. Uh, it's, you know... Uh, less than 200 pages which okay now that i say that that sounds larger but you know what i mean oh i i think yeah no it's like 150 pages 150 pages is short for a book yes and and specifically compared to the seven beauties of science fiction or the metamorphoses of science fiction uh even yeah. i think compared to uh not necessarily mm, I would have to check how long Starboard Wine is, but I think that at the very least the collected Delaney criticism is uh, is a larger uh, volume. But that's fine. This is ta this is one part of a larger body of work by this uh, scholar, uh, John Ryder, or reader, writer? 
I, I was assuming Ryder. Um, I so the 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 place that I not like heard about this book. I guess for the first time ever, because I I think you were familiar with it before this, but I I heard yes, Cameron Kunzelman mention it, it on a well, all right. I heard Cameron <laughs> Kunzelman mention it on a podcast, and he said John Ryder, um, well, which doesn't it. mean that he's like a total authority on this, but that's what I've been going with. Yeah, no. Uh, look, uh, John Ryder, it is, uh, and if that's incorrect, somebody let us know. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. And I will say that I think that, uh, like a lot of books of that type, uh, the individual case studies are where a lot of the uh, particular articulation of the ideas comes out and where, to some extent, the methodological statement is not always perfectly adhered to, not in a negative sense, but in the sense that, like, a large part of this book is going, here are some interesting case studies which are themselves particular and individual. This is not a, an aggressively theory-forward book. Yeah, At least no, in my that's opinion. true. No, I agree with you. It's it's not super theoretical, um, which is not a, not bad, a bad thing. thing. But um, I admit, I was kind of expecting it to be a little more theoretical. Um, yeah, it makes a very like a very mobile claim in the introduction that possibly we should just go through the introduction, talk about the the methodology here and where uh, Ryder's positioning himself in uh, science fiction studies. Uh, but there's, like, one sentence that really gets, like, pulled, that's uh, easily uh, removed and pulled out as, like, not necessarily the thesis of the work, but the way it's understanding its stuff. So I guess that's the thesis. Eh, I just don't want to, you know, uh, jump to conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that uh, sentence is? Oh, the sentence is, science fiction exposes what colonialism imposes. Yes. Uh, that science fiction is, he uses the metaphor of, like, polarized, like it's a material structure, but in the field of colonialism and colonial society, it becomes polarized and takes on certain forms. And the specific thing, and, uh, you know, correct me, I'm, this, is, this is quite an interesting claim, is that by creating a situation in which the various poles of colonialism, effectively the periphery and the metropole, the, the, colonial, the colonized other and the colonialist center uh, can, in the context of science fiction, be swapped around or you can move your perspective into the other one without necessarily uh, abandoning you know, colonialism, it allows for writers within colonialism to play with that and maybe see things differently or accidentally reveal things about colonialism and colonial ideology. So it exposes what colonialism imposes. Yeah, I think that's a good, like, I, I do think that makes it essentially a, um, you know, a thesis statement. Yeah, and um, I, I will say the cover is possibly the ideal image for this. Like, uh, it's a cover from, I think, an Astounding Stories uh, edition, and it's two aliens with a big camera thingy looking at two white guys, one of whom's wearing a pith helmet, and who are like, uh, you know, clearly a scientist and an explorer responding to being put in a cage and filmed by weird-looking aliens. Yes. Yeah, yes. so you can see how the, the colonial gaze is being inverted, but the subject of that gaze who's being colonized is still the colonial metropole is still white guys, explorers, and scientists. Yes, yes. Um, although something that I found really interesting and that we can talk about later on yeah, is yeah. that the there was a real ambiguity for me here in how much this book was willing to critique 
science itself as a colonial endeavor. Yeah, that that ambiguity definitely stood out to me as well. The there are specific sciences and kinds of science that it is very willing to uh, to critique and to put forward as basically like wrong, like not just wrong uh, at a um, in a in a like. Uh, concrete statements of fact about the universe way, but like the way that uh, Darwin and Wallace and other evolutionary, early uh, evolutionary and Darwinian scientists get discussed in this book is pretty much solely as a storehouse of racist ideas. Yeah, yeah. I think it would maybe be more accurate to say a storehouse of colonial ideas because the book does draw a distinction between colonialism and racism. Um, this and is, and this when is he true. talks racism about being a component. Yeah, it's just when he talks about scientific racism, it's kind of sp- separate from... He talks about social Darwinism separately from that. Does that make sense? Yes, that's fair. And it is... Yes, and he, he does point out that there's some very interesting instances where early science fiction uh, in this era could be both anti-racist and aggressively social Darwinist. Yes. So there's some... In- so yeah, you're, you're correct that he does he does, in fact, mean social Darwinism as, like, the thing that Darwinism provides for this discourse, not just racism. I, I was being, uh, I was being simplistic. Well, it's, I mean, I only point this out not just to, like, you know, gotcha you, but also oh, no, just I know, because I, know. I, I also was, like, one of the things that I was coming to this book with, in addition to thinking that it might be more theoretical than it is, I think I was expecting a more, I was expecting an analysis of race to be a little bit more, like, deeply interwoven into it. Mm. Um, which is not to say that there isn't an analysis of race, but rather that um, there's really like a, a greater emphasis on talking about race and racism in um, in chapter four, artificial humans and the construction of race. Yeah. Um, more so than more so even than, for example, in chapter two, chapter two, fantasies of appropriation, lost races and discovered wealth. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, like, I think it's readers taking for granted that there's a bunch of racism here. In fact, he even says in, uh, I think it's in chapter, ah, shoot, uh, I think it might be in chapter three. Let me check this. Uh, yes, in chapter three, uh, I think, or maybe it was chapter two, there's a reference to, like, look, there's a bunch of hideous racism in this stuff, and I don't want this book to just be a litany of hideous racisms, so I'm not going to be, like, just putting forward all the worst examples for you to uh, for you to see. And I think that was a good decision, because I think that this could very easily have been a much flatter work. Yeah, like, it, it's... The purpose of the work is not to be like, did you know that there's, like, uh, colonialist and racist ideologies at the kind of root of science fiction? Isn't that fucked up? Aren't you angry at science fiction now? <laughs> like, that's not uh, what it's doing. That, and yeah, good, no, because no. Because that would be rather boring. <laughs> yes, that would be a much more boring book. I think that... I think that some of the ways in which it suspends judgment of particular authors or... I'll get to this later when we get to, like, Jack London and H.G. Wells in particular, who we're going to mm. be talking about because they show up multiple times in this book for very good reason. Because uh, there's there's a relatively... There's not a ton of examples from this period, and those two are really important ones. Um, like, this is not a... Uh, this is not the kind of incredibly vast archive uh, that you might have in, say, 
you know, talking about every weirdo science fiction author from 1927 onward is just like, there's a gajillion of them because this market exists and so on. But there are a lot of people writing these things and there's various uh, sort of sub-genres of scientific romance and different forms of proto-science fiction that get brought up in, in various ways, like the Lost Race story, which is mentioned, which is like King Solomon's Mines, Alan Quatermain, uh, or any other story where, like, uh, adventurers discover a civilization that is uncontacted and has, like, great secrets of the past and great treasures in that very, um, the kind of thing that Indiana Jones is trying to do less racistly. And that should tell you how racist the original is. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I... Um, yeah, it is it is interesting, like, um, the moments when the book chooses to underline and say, this thing we're talking about is offensive, um, is interesting because it's, it's like, well, everything you're talking about is sort of, like, baseline offensive to a, a modern reader. Even the things that he does want to point out have some kind of critique in them. Yes, um. and I think that the the crucial part is, I think there's an, amb- uh, you know, if we're talking about ambiguities in the book that uh, obviously listeners and readers will have to make up their own decisions about, uh, one of them is the degree to which he wants to say that these works produce criticisms by nature of the things they're responding to and involve, or if they are specifically criticisms being constructed by the authors for rhetorical effect. And, you know, there's there's a uh, way of looking at it that says there is no difference, this does not matter, all that matters is the effect that's created, but this gets strained to a breaking point in one of the Jack London stories in particular, which I think uh, that's the, um, the, what is it called, the Red Messenger? Uh, the red the one. The red one. The red yeah, one. the red one. Which is, I think his reading of the red one is fascinating, and I really hope we can we can spend some time on it. But I also think that there's a deep ambiguity in how he writes about it. Between is Jack London being racist, but the way he's being, you know, to be super simplistic about it. Obviously, this is a podcast. That's what we do. Uh, being racist about things in a way that exposes the structure of racism. Or is he intentionally constructing a dynamic which exposes uh, exposes that racism for what it is? And I think that that's a question that it's like, on the one hand, you can say, well, it doesn't matter. The story does this thing. But it changes how you read certain passages and elements if you're talking about this symptomatically or like with a as an intentionally constructed rhetoric. At yeah. least it does for me, because Jack London is such a figure of rhetoric. Like, he popularizes the term yellow peril. He produces these really particular discourses. He is a socialist, but also kind of believes in, like, race war. Jack Jack London's a weird guy. Yeah, no, I, uh... I, I do think he's he's very... I, I, yeah, no, we should... When, when we, um... When we get to that chapter, we should talk yeah. about that uh, analysis because I think it's it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, do we want to just uh, go through the introduction and like the the core concept? We've gone over some of this, but uh, there's a few things that I think are really worth touching on. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So I mean, um, he like he starts with. Uh, you know, uh, maybe, you know, unsurprisingly, Edward Said and yep. 
basically the I, the idea that already exists that um, the novel and I mean literally the thing he quotes um, at, yep, yep. that is like an obvious starting point. The novel as a cultural artifact of bourgeois society and imperialism are unthinkable without each other. Um, so in some sense, he's just kind of extending that argument to the science fiction novel, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the basic model of literature there is that genres and forms develop because of the social spaces and the, the epistemes created by certain uh, social developments. And, uh, you know, Said's claim is that the novel as a form could not exist without bourgeois society and the imperialism that creates bourgeois society. And so you get... Uh, you know, you get the novel. And similarly, the novel then becomes a way that bourgeois society thinks about itself and represents itself to itself such that its later development, its, its uh, you know, sort of um, social development is itself determined by the form of the novel in a sort of a, a snake-eating-its-own-tail kind of way. And I think it's worth noting also that he does uh, basically accept the Suvinian account of the history of science fiction, although, you know, one that has developed since Suvin, which is the idea that, like, wondrous journey stories and, uh, um, and satires are this, like, source from which science fiction comes in a certain sense, which is interesting given how he refers to Suvin later. Yeah, yeah, we talked about this before recording that um, he seems to, when he talks explicitly about Suvin, he seems to almost be positioning himself as like an anti-Suvinian and like his way of defining science fiction is very different. Um, but he is, I think, clearly drawing on, yeah, Suvin's like historical perspective. Yeah, and also fundamentally, I think that he does believe in, uh, I mean, the cognitive comes up quite a bunch in this book. And like cognition and and way and the, the kind of things Suvin is concerned about. But what he specifically does with Suvin in the introduction that I think is it's certainly a decision, is he combines Suvin and Gernsback to say that he specifically will not be defining science fiction. Science fiction is a you know it when you see it category. It doesn't mean Okay. He is not calling it. I don't think it's a you know it when you see it category. He's. I mean, that, okay, that's no, not what, what a bundle definition is. What he actually says is when in the notes when he's talking about Kincaid's formulation, which is the one he puts forward. One needs to be cautious about Kincaid's formulation, however. Reducing science fiction to whatever we are looking for when we look for science fiction means nothing unless we know something about who we are, and more to the point, we can be identified on the basis of those who recognize a certain set of conventions. So it it is not quite. I know it when I see it, but only because the I is specifically defined as a kind of reader and a kind of scholar. It is still that kind of definition. Okay. No, all right. You're... Like, I'm, right. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be harsh here. The the megatext, the, uh, the, the, like, science fiction is what we call science fiction or what we talk about when we talk about science fiction, these are functional definitions, even if that is not the approach I tend to take to genres, but I do think that it's important to, to foreground that that is the kind of definition of science fiction we're using before mentioning that he then, again, lumps Gernsback and Suvin together as the alternative, which is, if you're defining science fiction around some particular quality, you're doing it because you either want to get market value or you want to get cultural value, with Gernsback as the marketer and Suvin as the cultural snob. Yes. 
Yes, and and I definitely think that is like an unfair characterization, at least of Suvin. It's not unfair to characterize Gernsback no, as a marketer. Gernsback would have said he was doing that because that is what Gernsback literally was doing. It you know it goes on to something else. Gernsback's a fascinating figure, and I'm sure we'll eventually get to a bunch of Gernsbackiana in this podcast. Uh, but I do think that the comparison here, I mean, I guess what's telling is he then draws on Suvin at various points or is in conversation with very intent, very intensely Suvinian thinkers like Carl Friedman later in the book, whereas Gernsback shows up like once, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or like shows up as a market, like as someone who... Uh, you know, bought these things and thus shaped science fiction uh, by pointing to particular things and saying, I want stories like this. Right. Anyways, the the point being that um, he's setting out with a very particular way of looking at science fiction as a, like you said, use the term bundle definition, which is to say there's no essential essence, but it is a collection of things which share certain qualities, not all of which qualities may belong to every member of the set. Yes. And, like, I, I do think, um, I think specifically for the, um, the type of historical development he's interested in, I think that's kind of a, that's, that becomes a useful approach to some extent. Oh, yeah, no, I don't disagree. Like, um, if, if you're talking about a historical period and a body of literature written then, then his focus on reception, on bodies of work, on conventions that you can see repeated is a very solid uh, way of defining a periodization. I don't mean to say it's not. And also on emergence and in the sense of like the way that a genre develops out of other genres. Um, uh, he, he talks about that on, on page 18 and about how like the basically the 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 thing that is recognizable as science fiction um becomes uh becomes something that's available over time out of like previously existing uh genres including for example romance like in the sense of like a certain type of uh adventure story um well i yeah. guess adventure story is a slightly different thing but like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, that is obviously like a, 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 he, he's part of what he talks about pretty often is, um, I think it's, he calls it like the, the resurgence of romance or the romance, um, that's not quite the phrase. Yeah. Romantic but, but, resurgence, uh, something like that? I don't know. Some, something uh, that happened in the late 19th century where, um, you know, that, uh, genre of novel that had previously existed, um, like, yes. has a, and, a and revival. Like, and there's also a revival of, like, quest stories and, like, so it's adventure stories, quest stories, uh, romance in the sense of, like, an Arthurian romance, uh, as well. Um, yes. And, uh, I think connected to that as an interesting way is his discussion of, of motifs and conventions. Because we can mention that, that phrase a few times. The idea that there are elements that show up repeatedly in different stories and those help connect them to each other and that this is what a genre is made of. It's the, it's the cloud of works that touch on certain conventions and share them and have a readership that's looking for them. And something that I think is interesting is that he then goes on to say that, uh, Figures like, say, um, one of his examples is the figure of the future human evolution, 
which has a giant brain and a tiny little body and has to rely entirely on the machines that their incredible intellect can build. This is H.G. Wells's Martians, but he also gives a litany in one of the later chapters of other big brain baby men from the future. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so he argues that these are best read as myth, not in the sense of being like some kind of eternal archetype, but rather in the sense of, and he, he quotes uh, Cloud Levi-Strauss here, imaginary solutions to real social contradictions. The idea being that when you get a repeated motif in science fiction, like the big-headed baby man from the future, um, the point of this is that it in some way responds to or resolves a social need that people have, a psychological or uh, structural desire, in a way that, you know, can't actually solve the real-world problem, but provides a catharsis or a resolution in the work uh, on some level. And that he specifically says this is not about copycats. This is not about someone seeing someone use a cool thing in one work and then responding to it later, but rather figures become popular because there's a general social desire for this, and so people produce it, works that produce it are successful, and you get this more general, uh, unauthored thing. Which I don't know that he actually sticks the landing on every time, because he really likes to talk about how one work is all is clearly responding to or rewriting a previous work's version of that thing. Yeah, that's fair. I feel like there's a way to synthesize those ideas where you could talk about, like, okay, obviously works are literally influential on each other, but what leads yeah. to the thing that has been influenced becoming prominent, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, I should be clear. My complaint is not that that doesn't make sense. Like, what you just said makes perfect sense. It's that I, I kind of wish he did more of the, here's a bunch of disconnected examples of the same motif, and here's what they all say together, the way he does with the big-headed baby man from the future. Yes, because it does feel like that's... Um... Yeah, and he also kind of does that, I think, with, like, uh, Lost Race Fiction in that chapter. Mm, yeah, no, you're right. That one has more of—because that one's sort of very proto-science fiction, some of the examples are straightforwardly adventure fiction, and some of them are more science fictional. Uh, that one didn't—if the, if the point is about figures of science fiction operating in this way, then I would like to see it with more science fictions. Yeah, yeah. That's that's totally fair. Yeah. Um, uh, any, anyways, I, I don't want to sound like I'm nitpicking too much. Like, I, I'm just finding this... Uh, I found this a really interesting uh, book. And part of the way it's interesting is that it makes me want to poke and prod at it and, and play with the pieces. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so, I mean, do... Have we really, like... Uh, I feel like there's more to dig into in the introduction... Um, yeah, I think the one big thing that I would want to fun uh, mention is uh, that a number of these structures are thought about as, like, binaries. Like, we mentioned the idea that science fiction is structured by the colonial in the sense that it reproduces these colonial binaries of the other and the, uh, you know, and these binaries of the center and the periphery, the... And he, he lists a number of different sort of dynamics, but the one that he, I think leans the most on that is the strongest 
uh, is the one that refers back to that, that epigraph of Marx, the idea that uh, colonial anthropology, which is a science, which is involved in the way of thinking that a lot of these scientific romances are doing very directly, uh, at the time, and to some extent now, posits other cultures as a way of looking into the past of Western culture. Yeah, yeah. I think a, a really good, like, um, encapsulation of what he's talking about there, which is on page six that I, like, highlighted for myself. Great. Um, the way colonialism made space into time gave the globe a geography not just of climates and cultures, but of stages of human development that could confront and evaluate one another. Um, yeah. And I think it's important that uh, he's talking about, you know, these... And, and he is not saying that that is actually what different cultures are, right? But Yes. Um, but that in these science fiction works, it very often is what they are. And that part of what often happens, and this is often... Um, happening in part in a way that like draws on uh, kind of like satirical uh, reversals of expectations is that you have the supposedly primitive um, you know confronting and like looking back at the supposedly advanced well um, I, I think another another way to put it is for a lot of these works especially in HG Wells the primitive is the white western colonial guy who is encountering the aliens with their technology or the uh social organization that they're not prepared for and you know in H.G. Wells's famous war of the worlds it's very literally explicit within the text that uh the alien invasion is being compared to the british colonization of locations where the foreigners with better weapons are coming in and sweeping away the society that existed before only here it's the british being swept away and this is this is a famous element in science fiction the idea that like uh wells reversed the colonial empire back on britain with an even more technologically uh powerful martian race yeah, um, and it's also important, and he talks about this um, in, he, he uses uh, a, another work by Wells, um, Mr. Bletsworthy on Rample Island. I had never heard of this before. I just want to say that. This same. is not a work I've ever run into. Same, same. Um, but he uses that to, like, really uh, dig into this idea of, um, you know, the kind of, uh, the real world, like, uh, white colonizer becoming the... Um, the the quote-unquote primitive to say like okay but it's it's more complex than just um like we are talking about uh well what we are presented with is a metafictive structure a fiction commenting upon another fiction um so it's it's not like it's not like what we're seeing revealed here is the actual backwardness of real like english society um that's that's kind of uh, too simplistic a way uh, of thinking about it. I do think we should we should briefly explain what Bletsworthy is. Oh yeah, you know Just we should. If neither of us have ever heard of it, I don't think anyone listening is likely to have heard of it. If you are the one reader who has read Bletsworthy and has opinions on it, please let us know. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, 
Bletsworthy is a story that has a, like, um, you know, the, the protagonist, Bletsworthy, uh, is on a sh- This is a, a Wells novel. It's He's on a ship. There's a, a castaway situation. He goes through these things, and he ends up in a lost world, a an island where they have, like, uh, ancient uh, dinosaurs, although in this case it's, like, giant megatheria, so uh, giant sloths, and uh, humans living there in a sort of pre- uh, like an earlier form of civilization and these humans are totally satirical like their entire society set uh is all about pointing out the ways in which british society is itself similar to theirs in bad ways the the islanders just suck and uh the um dinosaurs of the island the megatheria also suck they just destroy everything and they're very explicitly an example of uh of Darwinism not meaning survival of the best, only survival of whatever can survive most efficiently. So you have these big stupid animals that make it impossible to have anything good on this island, and everyone there sucks. And then that's part three of the story, and part four is him waking up in an asylum because it turns out he had had a, uh, you know, a breakdown of reality, and he, in fact, has been in England more or less the whole time. There was no island of giant monsters, there was no other society, and then his sort of final realization is, oh, so this was English society the whole time, I just have now understood it correctly via my delusions, this whole place sucks. Yeah, yeah, the the, the quotation from the novel itself, um says, uh, for after all, what was Rample Island, Doctor? It was only the real world looming through the mists of my illusions. Um, and this idea of, like, looming through the mists, um, you know, he's he's talking about that when he talks about how uh, this is not just, you know, the reality, the like, in the novel, it's the reality of English society looming through the mists, but, um, like, in, in uh, our analysis of the novel... Uh, we're seeing, you know, um, we're, we're seeing, like, uh, colonial narrative itself, like, looming through science fiction, I guess is one way of talking about it. And one of the points of this is that his model of the, the illusions he experiences are themselves very genre-driven. They are, uh, a version of a story that this Mr. Bletsworthy can be assumed to have read. They're constructed out of the stories from within British society, and then they reflect on British society, but it's not as though it's quite as pat as, or at least we're not reading it quite as pat as H.G. Wells maybe meant it when he just basically did uh, Swift's uh, Yahoos and Quiniums, uh, which is the, the sort of ending of Gulliver's Travels where Gulliver comes back and is like, oh, you're all just the horrible apes and not the smart horses. This society also sucks. Yes. Uh, and to some extent, Bletsworthy is like very clearly responding to or playing on Gulliver's Travels. Because Gulliver's Travels is like, if you're going to do that kind of satire, if someone goes to a fantastical place and then comes back and realizes that people here are just as awful as people there and uh, decide that you don't like society, you are referencing Gulliver's Travels. That You don't get a choice. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um Um. Oh, so I think that covers the, and like, as you can see, there's, 
I would say the main theoretical thrust of the introduction is the idea of science fiction allows us to detach and move the get the colonial gaze around within a certain uh, space. It allows for that looming through the mists of colonial narratives in science fictional narratives where they are complicated or challenged or in some cases just straightforwardly reproduced. Um, and that... Uh, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this involves specifically this idea of time and location and this uh, this confrontation with the future or the past that's supposed to be possible in the colonial era. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, do you want to talk at all about like, um, you know, uh, the way he uses the idea of ideological fantasies? I feel like that's kind of important. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's a lot of what, like, that, that's diagnostic or symptomatic of those colonial narratives that you see through the science fiction. Um, so do you want to, do you want to lead into that? Yeah, yeah, so he's, um, ideological fantasies is a term from Zizek, um, which is, I, I think definitely, like, it's a, it's a concept that we have... That, that, like, in, in its use here, I think there's there's places to critique it. Um, but, uh, you know, basically the idea that there are these powerful, um, you know, beliefs that... Um, so, uh, what makes something an ideological fantasy is that it's a belief that one consciously knows is not true, uh, but like behaves as though it is true yeah an example being whether money is real like we know that a piece of paper with certain things printed on it is not uh inherently valuable that it's a token of certain social interactions but we will treat it like it is in fact inherently valuable because that is how we use it yes um and uh he he lists uh Four of them, which I think are, like, you know, worth mentioning. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so one of them is is literally just, uh, like, racism. Um, yeah. And, like, the the belief that uh, people of other races are, like, not human in the same way that white people are. Yeah, the, the quotation is, We know very well that the racial other is a human being, just like ourselves, but we behave under the assumption that the other is a grotesque parody of humankind. In the period of science fiction's emergence, this kind of racism extended into scientific discourse with the controversies concerning monogenetic versus polygenetic theories of the origins of the human race. That is, the question of whether white people and non-whites were actually distinct species. And this is something that I actually know a bunch about because uh, I did um, uh, history of science in undergraduate and specifically wrote my thesis about Alfred Russell Wallace, a monogenist uh, and, one, and like arguably the first Darwinian. And there's a whole thing there that I won't get into. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, uh, the idea of whether, like, racism is truly an ideological fantasy that um, that people kind of acknowledge is not really true, it that's, like, an interesting claim. It's a place um, where I think the construction of the category of ideological fantasy is kind of breaking down, because he goes on to say that, you know, this may look like mere contractual agreement, but the element of consensual hallucination, to adopt a phrase from William Gibson, appears more strongly. And so then the question becomes, what's the difference between an ideological fantasy and a genuine belief, right? Like, 
what what is the distinction being made there between uh, effectively someone believing something that is not true and acting on it versus someone caught you know absorbing cognitive dissonance and allowing themselves to act in a way that doesn't fit what they would consciously say they believe but they act on and i can certainly think of examples of racism that are very transparently this kind of ideological fantasy where they insist that they are not racist but behave in racist ways that kind of thing right yeah but i don't Um, think that applies to half the racism in this book when the people involved would have proudly said they were racists because they're writing in the late 1800s yeah, yeah. Um, but to to go on, because I do want to, like, list the yeah, other yeah, yeah. ideological fantasies he's talking about. So there's um, what he calls the discoverer's fantasy. Um, or I I don't know. I would almost call it, like, the the settler's fantasy. I'd call um, it the fantasy of Terra Nullius. Yes. Uh, the, the, the fantasy that, um, like, the, the land that um, is, you know, uh, quote-unquote discovered or explored... Uh, by the colonial project is like empty of people even though yes clearly there are people there um, yeah or even I, you get examples of this in science fiction where there aren't people there or the people there are being set up to be in some way justifiable is that you can just go past them and it's all about the appropriation of land and wealth yes um and then there's uh there's the the missionary fantasy um which is the the fantasy that um you know the the colonial arrival is essentially is like salutary and like uh well, fulfills it's it's, it's but, the fan sorry go on no 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 you you can go ahead it's the fantasy that whatever goes wrong in colonization it's okay because you're saving their souls in some way it doesn't have to be religious but it's the idea that by showing up Sure, some things might go wrong right now, but there is something they needed from you that you, the colonizer, are providing to them. Whether that's the gospel or technology or, like, democracy, they didn't have it and they need it, so you're justified in whatever you do to get there. Yeah, and that, like, whatever previously existed that is destroyed or changed is, like, something that didn't really matter or that needed to be developed into this other better thing. Yes, that fundamentally it's growing pains. Yes. And this, and each of these are presented as, like, solving a problem for the colonizer in pursuing their, like, material interests in crushing other people and taking their stuff. Well, the missionary needs to believe that they're actually making people's lives better because otherwise they would have to admit that they are hurting someone for their own gain. And similarly, the appropriator, the the settler, has to believe that what they're uh, taking over, nobody really owned it and it was just free to take because otherwise they'd be thieves. Things like that. Yeah. And then the fourth one, he calls it the anthropologist's fantasy, which is the thing we already kind of discussed, the idea that... um that like other cultures uh belong to the past even though they clearly do exist in the present yes the idea that the stages of time are also like present in other people and you can look at them and say you're my past and i'm your future uh i do want to point out that all of these are framed as being fundamentally subcategories or qualities of a larger ideological structure which is the idea of progress Yes. Which is a fundamental part of how uh, 
colonialism functions, especially in this period, the idea that this is all a kind of progress, this is all, whether you've uh, justified in social Darwinian terms of survival of the fittest, or if you justify it in terms of like, uh, you know, the betterment of everyone, or even just this is the direction history goes and it will continue to go that direction. The colonizing society sees itself as the future or as the gateway to the future, and everyone else is to some extent put by the wayside or incorporated into that. And I think that's like one place where you can really interestingly see how this is not just this this the discussion in this book is not purely relevant to these very obviously colonial science fictions of the 19th century mm-hmm. um but rather to like things that lie at the root of science fiction itself and continue to be relevant throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, I do want to I think there's an interesting question there that I want to get back to, like, at the end of the podcast, about what does it mean to say they lie at the root, mm. given the model of genre that is used in this? Because I want to that's... put one... Sorry, go on. No, that's totally fair. But, like, I... Uh, maybe... But I think what I just said can be rephrased without that particular... Uh... Oh, yeah. I just... I actually wanted to bring up something you pointed out to me, which is the discussion of Frankenstein that happens early on in the introduction as well, because it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is the idea that uh, science fiction uh, does not have a single starting point, certainly not in a single text in the model this is using, because it's so much about the readership and the body of conventions and so on that a single text appearing suddenly doesn't matter. And so the argument with Frankenstein is since Frankenstein doesn't kick off an era of science fictional writing and reading and doesn't uh, connect to these larger things, Frankenstein isn't science fiction until, due to a change in copyright conditions and various other things, it gets read by a larger public in the 1880s. So almost a century after its publication, it gets picked up again, and now it's being read in the context of other science fictional works, and now it becomes science fiction the way it's read then. The idea being that a given work is different genres when it is read or picked up in different periods. Um, which, again, I think makes for some really interesting questions about what it means to be, for something to be at the origin or influential on a genre if it fund- if the work and if the genre fundamentally changes when the readership changes. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, like, a very... Because I, I think, you know, um, I think that's kind of a... Again, this is one of those places where he's he's more Suvinian maybe than he wants to admit because, like, Suvin is very interested in this idea of um, works almost, like, retroactively becoming science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, I mean, Suvin would not describe it that way. But like, No, no, I, he wouldn't because he has a, a trans-historical model of science fiction. But, but I think this is something you can get out of Suvin without too much difficulty is maybe a better way of putting it. Yes, um, that there are ways of reading something as science fiction. Yes, and and that they effectively mean, or can mean, that, like, works become science fiction over time. Yes, although I will say one of the differences, Suvin is very formally focused, and so it's like you as an individual reader can determine if something is science fiction or not. I don't think that's the case with uh, Ryder here because he's talking about a a large-scale reception and how that impacted the culture and the, the motifs and the you know, the the fantasies that exist in a culture. So Frankenstein could not become science fiction 
just because someone in the 1880s read it and went, this is science fiction. It becomes science fiction because a lot of people in the 1880s read it and agreed it was science fiction. Yes, yeah. And and I think that um, that perspective of, like, uh, acknowledging or, like, accounting for the actual reading audience of these books is, like, interesting and worthwhile. Yeah, I think it's a useful approach. It It is, generally speaking, not mine, but I think it's a useful approach. Yeah, yeah. Ah, um. oh, so... Do we want to move on to chapter two, the uh, fantasies of appropriation, lost races, and discovered wealth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah. And you'll note this is the first of uh, some of the, or not the first, like it's because the first was racism, but it's one of the ideological fantasies that were listed uh, in this uh, entry is appropriation, the fantasy of the, the colonizer going to a place and discovering treasure or like wealth that doesn't belong to anyone and just going, mine now. Yes. Huh. And so the um, the kind of story this is, is I think I mentioned King Solomon's Mines, which I've retroactively realized is, uh, retrospectively realized is maybe not a super accessible reference for people, but I just read this book, so I've been thinking about it. Uh, but it's basically the story of a bunch of adventurers who discover some kind of map or clue to a lost... Oh, you know what is this movie? What this it? You know what movie is this? What? Disney's Atlantis. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Like, that's just straightforwardly doing this genre um, on purpose. And uh, so there's always a map which leads the, uh, leads the people to location. And I really really enjoy this chapter actually i think it's really good uh in part because it lays out the elements of these uh of the fantasy and the story and talks about their ideological meaning uh really well and really clearly yeah so do and we it's just also wanna... oh, sorry go on i also think this is i mean we kind of talked about like the idea that he th this is uh a chapter where he really like goes into a bunch of examples and shows the ways that they parallel each other yeah. Um, and I, I think that's like a powerful method of argumentation. Yeah, um, I, think I agree. It, it really demonstrates that there's something there. Absolutely. Uh, and so do we want to just go over like some of the motifs uh, he identifies in the uh, Lost Race and Discovered Wealth story? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, uh, so, so you already mentioned the map. Yes, the... Um, some kind of thing that tells them there's a thing here you're not just going out into nowhere and allows them to specifically find the place on the at the time of writings this is like wells and Verne. this is as the global map is being completed there are fewer and fewer empty spaces on the map the 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 white places on the map as uh people talked about it then and occasionally still do now uh and so you need the secret map to lead you to the place that has yet to be discovered despite the normal map being full. Yes. Um, uh, there's the, uh, the civilization that you find there of uh, natives who are usually... Uh, most of them are quite friendly but do not realize the wealth that they have access to. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the... Uh... There's the 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 civil war. Um, yeah, like, there's a, there's usually a struggle within the society so that the colonialists can get on the good side of it and immediately save the people they're coming to help. 
And by say the people were coming to help, I mean the people they're coming to rob. But it's not robbery because fantasy of appropriation. Right, right. And also I think often, and this is one of the reasons why it's the lost race, often it's like the rediscovery of a people who have been, who who in some sense are like, you know, they literally are like the past of the um, the explorers. Or of somewhere else. One of the examples is uh, finding basically a, uh, maybe an underground, I can't remember, a city of, like, Mexico, of Aztec, um, like, just people functioning now who uh, are being deceived by their evil high priest about the state of the larger world so that they don't go and connect to it. Because, obviously, if you were, in fact, living in an uncolonized pre-Columbian city, uh, you would uh, look at the Victorian era and go... Yeah, I absolutely want to go walk outside into that. Right. Um. But but this is actually uh, the motif that stuck out the most to me, just by how specific and how often repeated it is, is the motif of the princess and the evil high priest. Yes. Because there's always a princess who is good and often, like, literally light-skinned and is, like, the uh, obvious sexy uh, person that some member of the uh, of the party of explorers is going to fall in love with, and there's an evil high priest who usually wants to marry the princess or control her in some way, and who represents all of the, like, you know, quote-unquote backward and superstitious or otherwise manipulative uh, ideas of this society that are preventing them from joining the colonial progress future. And this yeah. just repeats. Like, he gives so many examples of then there's a princess, and she's in conflict with an evil high priest, and then they have to defeat the evil high priest and marry the princess, or... And this is an interesting thing. Sometimes there's no evil high priest because we're actually doing a slightly more satirical mode where the society they've discovered is not being presented as something that needs to be dragged, kicking, and screaming into the 19th century, but rather... uh, have their own things and like their own satirical comment to make on the explorer society but in those examples there's still often a princess and they still often have the romance plot and the princess either leaves with them or in one case one of their members gets to stay because he and the princess have fallen in love yeah yeah and i think that that like satirical thing also brings to another uh, motif which is like the the treasure um which is often kind of identified with the princess. Um, yeah. And and sometimes the treasure is like, oh, um, you know, the people of this land, like, the, the, the ground is covered in diamonds and they don't care about it because they, you know, they see them as worthless. Yeah, there's um, a lot of ones where, like, gold is worthless because everyone has it, which I will point out is actually a motif that originates in Thomas More's Utopia. Um, yes, where no, they have definitely. so much gold that it's considered worthless and it's and it's useless. But yeah, the um in the fame you know in King Solomon's Mines, which is like the original adventure story example of this, because a lot of these aren't science fiction; they are adventure stories. But then they start to shade into science fiction as you have you know uh, lost world dinosaurs or oh shit, this is timely. I I just realized the most recent Magic the Gathering set is a literal lost world and lost race story just trying really hard not to be colonialist and it's honestly kind of hilarious <laughs> like the, the way they solve this is by leading into the sort of satirical side where the uh lost uh i think they're called the Olmtech uh civilization that is discovered by the various surface civilizations in the hollow earth no less uh 
are highly advanced and uh, it's they get disrupted by a bunch of outsiders bringing in all their problems from the outer world. Yes. Uh, but yeah, no, um, I... You know, I did. I genuinely did not think about where have I been seeing Lost World uh, stuff recently until, like, just now, which I feel very silly about. Mm-hmm. There's an idea that he introduces here that I think is like very interesting, um, which is the uh, he calls it cognitive appropriation. Did this mm-hmm. stand out to you at all? Um, I remember the phrase, but I'm trying to find the specific moment. Uh, he introduces it on page fifty-three. Thank you. Um, Alongside the political, economic, and sexual modes of appropriation in the lost race motif, uh, this represents a cognitive appropriation by which the scientist takes ownership of the narrative and of history itself. Yeah, this Um, is like... Sorry, go on. So, like, uh, you know, when the... Because they're, you know, another thing that shows up uh, reliably in these stories is that one, at least one member of the party is a scientist, often an anthropologist... Yeah, the, um, it's these are usually scientific expeditions as well as treasure hunting ones. Yes, um, and they are essentially, uh, you know, uh, their 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 job there is to explain this world almost like often like explain it to the the lost race people that they're discovering. Yes. Yeah, the lost people don't know their own history and need to have it explained to them by someone who can fit the pieces together with the outside world. And this is this is something where I think that even more recent lost world stories that try to be less racist uh, often do this as well. Like where there's some reason why the scholar from the outside is an important figure because... And this is something that shows up a little bit in Disney's Atlantis. Surprisingly little because that one's just... The main character has been duped by villains in order to try and loot Atlantis, so it's not like uh, it's not like he's really bringing that much uh, wisdom to them. They know their history, but there's still an element of like the outsider who can be virtuous here, even in the more recent versions, is the scholar who just wants to understand, right? Yeah, and and this is a part because I I think I might have mentioned before that he has in some ways less of a critique of science as itself being colonial than I expected. Um, but this is where he does have that critique. Um, where, you know, uh, uh, basically says that like the, um, the scientists and their, um, you know, their, their scholarly work in, in these stories, uh, Quote, they make clear the relevance of colonialism and imperialism to the science in science fiction. Um. Yeah. And again, this is a place where I think there's that ambiguity between is it, are we meant to say that, uh, you know, Conan Doyle's uh, Professor Challenger story of the Lost World is, is one of these. And uh, that one clearly does have some pretty satirical elements. He draws them out, he points to them, he's like, for some, you know, Professor Challenger is repeatedly compared to the leader of the Ape Men as the leader of this little expedition, and, you know, the two of them are, are a matched set, and that's satirical, right? But at the same time, a lot of these are a lot less satirical about the anthropologist explaining, uh, explaining the history of the lost race to them. So it's an interesting situation for me also in saying, okay... Are we supposed to read this as an intentional satire that the satirical element is surviving, or 
is this not satire because it's not doing these other elements that we've associated with satire here? How are how are we to read this effectively? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh shoot, there was something related to that that I wanted to point out. Uh Yeah, and there's some instances of uh like sarcasm about this where the the person bringing in the information is yeah is uh satiric is satirized is not able to understand it or is failing to understand some fundamental thing about humans that the uh their interlocutor um in the lost race fully does understand and those ones are interesting because what you get is this idea that like the lost race person has the sort of ancient wisdom of what humans are all like, even if they don't have the full scientific knowledge of the world. The example of this being in uh, She Who Must Be Obeyed, one of the like most infamous pulp narratives of all time, I think it's fair to say, uh, in which there's like an immortal queen who spent who rules over a uh, this lost society, and then when the outsider comes and is like, but surely you want to come back to like a society with lots of like technology and empire and stuff and you can be part of that and she goes no because i like being in charge and i'm immortal so it genuinely doesn't matter to me which society i'm in because i get to be in charge and the sort of uh libidinal rulership drive that she's expressing is one that the scientist completely fails to understand yes yeah so there's a bunch of little interesting things like that also, I do want to very briefly mention that he does use the uh, the term novum from Suvin uh, quite often, but he uses it in a way that really bugs me. Yeah? Uh, he uses it to, def- to... He says the novum is the entire setting of the story basically every time. Like, mm-hmm. the novum is being used not to point to an individual novum within the framework of the story that is hegemonic of it, but to say the novum is just the term he uses for the distinction between this world and the zero world. So, like, the entire setting of a Lost Race story is a novum, is the novum. Yeah. And I just find that a very... It's not a major part of the analysis most of the time, so it's fine, but I find it very frustrating because it takes all the specificity away and just says the ways this is unlike the real world are important. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no, I know. That's why we do science fiction studies. <laughs> yeah, fair. <sighs> oh. But yeah, no, the so there's the cognitive appropriation, the sort of uh, the physical appropriation of materials, the sexual appropriation of marrying the princess. Uh, there's just so much that goes on that the lost world is just about handing to the colonial people who show up. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so as an example of that Novum thing, by the way, there's a line here which is, in later science fiction, when the Novum tends no longer to be a strange land the characters enter by venturing out of the empirical norm, but instead is a full-blown reality that the reader has to learn about from details of behavior and background. Uh, and I don't think that's using Novum in a useful way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hear that. Like, I think the Novum is a strange land works reasonably well because it expresses this world differs by the discovery of this one thing. But if you say the Novum is just the fact that you're in a different world, then it doesn't, you can't analyze it because it's everything. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that later in that sentence, um, he uh, he's actually quoting Delaney. Yes. Um, who... who 
who has like a very different idea of like science fictions the 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 science fictional worlds um yeah from the zero world yeah where it's fundamental to language in every respect yes yeah um no and, that's and, that's a fair point yeah delaney also definitely wouldn't extend science fiction back to the 19th century in this oh way. no this there's a there's a note at the at the back which is like uh that is like nope delaney says that there's science fiction only starts when there's a readership of science fiction so quote uh from page 158 note 8 Samuel R. Delaney's insistence that the history of science fiction goes back no further than about 1910 is directed against professional academic constructions of science fiction that have sought to lend it the prestige of literature, in the sense implied by Subin's use of the term subliterary. So, yes, but here he's saying, well, Delaney's only saying that because he's correctly mad at Subin, so I can totally use Delaney's theorizations here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, he is talking about like a a like a popular audience and like commercial fiction. So yeah, no, that know. is true. Like, there's there's ways in which it is closer aligned to Delaney, but Delaney's also very clear that he does not consider Verne and Wells to be science fiction, but something else. Yes. Uh, so yeah, do we have anything else we want to touch on in Lost Race Fiction? Again, I really like this chapter. I yeah, think no, all of good. the specific examples, I don't think we've touched on a number of the more explicitly satirical examples, but that's fine. Uh, yeah, no, it just, it covers a bunch of different versions of this motif and shows similarities and how those connect to colonial fantasies, all in a very straightforward way. Yeah. Um, one thing I think is interesting, as he talks about in... in uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's *The Lost World* yeah. is um, the the relationship of that book generically to the hoax, mm, yeah, um, which uh, which is like which uh, you know so the the um, challenger the you know scientist protagonist of the story um, is like very concerned with trying to produce. Um, evidence of this lost world yeah um but uh there is like you know uh how to how to put it that like there is you know suspicion over whether his evidence is accurate um yeah there's and the idea that this is a hoax because and uh the novel's frontispiece (laughs) is itself a faked photograph of the four adventurers in the story yes um which, uh, where Conan Doyle himself, I believe, plays Challenger, the character he satirizes and presents as, like, this, uh, arrogant, self-assured ja- uh, jackass at many times. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, although I will say that the final instance of evidence is, uh, um, clearly meant to be, like, fu- having fun with this, where the scientist has come back and everyone's like, okay, you've just got photographs, photographs can be faked. And it's important to remember that Conan Doyle himself had gotten involved in a fake photograph scandal, like a big one around fairies. Yes. Uh, no, there's some real irony there. Because he endorsed uh, these faked photographs. So, uh, And the Challenger stories, I believe, are pretty late in his uh, career. So they speak to uh, the fact that he is, in fact, wryly commenting on this, if I'm remembering the timeline correctly. But his... Uh, so Challenger brings out some rocks and some photographs, and the public is like, you claimed you saw living dinosaurs. Fuck off. And then he brings out a birdcage with a pterodactyl in it. 
<laughs> which yes. he then releases into the hall where it terrifies everyone and then flies out a window, never to be seen again. Which rules. Yes. And I, I, what I find interesting about this um, is, I mean, what, what he sort of, uh, the, the hay he makes out of this, um, just to quote again, uh, the play of appearance and reality in these hoaxes achieves this double purpose of, um, like, pro- uh, providing the actual content of adventure fiction while also, uh, like, distancing uh, from that. Um, by dramatizing the tension between cognitive appropriation and epistemological destabilization. Um, A a, a blending together of satire and romance that in turn alludes to the more troubling permeability of the border separating science and ideology. So I think that really is what I wanted to get to, the the border separating science and ideology, the way that uh, these works, at least some of them, uh, trouble that border. Yeah, I... I think that there's an interesting thing going on there where he brings that up when he brings up the popularization of science, the, like, the transmission of scientific ideas to a larger society, whereas it's not the, the scientific analysis itself, but rather the communication of it to a larger society where ideology can get in, in this particular example. Um, yes, that's true. And I think that there's a... This is one of those examples of something where it's ambiguous between is the point that someone like Conan Doyle is doing is intentionally playing with this and and hoaxing and satirizing, and should we see the other ones which seem much more devoted to their claims, that seem much less satirical and playful about it, are we to say that they are also doing this thing, or are they trying to shore up that boundary and reinforce it? But science fiction means that they're always destabilizing it. Yeah, and I think, you know, it would not be inappropriate here to, like, question the idea that that science and ideology are two separate things and there's a boundary between them that can be troubled, as opposed to the idea that, like, scientific knowledge itself is ideological from the get-go. So I think the the problem there is is just in the use of the term ideology in specific in particular ways of looking at this through particular, I would say, you know, Zizekian lenses. Yeah, yeah. Ideology is necessarily untrue, if you see what I mean. So right. if you believe that science can give us useful information about the physical world, you have to say that there's science and ideology, and that these two things might be intertwined but are separate. Whereas I think I, that I'm not I'm sure I'm just that... saying I think, I think there's a... a... Um, I think there's a version of analysis here, and I'm not saying that this is mine, but, like, that would, in fact, question the the ability of science to give us objective knowledge about the natural oh, world. Oh, certainly, certainly. I think that scientific non-realism is a, is a well-regarded uh, philosophy of science. Um, but and I just my... think it's, it's, it's interesting that he is, um, while he has uh, so much critique of almost the way that science... In, and uh, the way that these books can reveal how their contemporary science is, like, tainted by ideology yeah. is not willing to point to that contemporary science and say, well, it is itself ideological. Yeah, um, and I mean, again, I think that this is just the, the categories that this analysis, at least as I understand it, constructs provide a pretty sharp distinction between knowledge and ideology in a way that I personally even as someone who thinks that science gives us uh, perfectly useful knowledge about the world uh, often, um, 
I would not say that ideology is necessarily untrue and that true information is non-ideological, but I do believe that that is part of this framework. These ideological fantasies don't have a corresponding ideological reality, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, this is this is definitely me getting in a bit over my head. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I dragged you into those depths, so... <laughs> uh, Do you want to move on to Chapter 3? I think that's probably a good idea, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, Dramas of Interpretation. Um, this which is... is... Sorry, go on. No, 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 go ahead. I would say this is much about precisely that question. This uh, Yes. The idea of... Um, science fiction that dramatizes questions of knowledge creation and uh, in particular colonial knowledge creation and uh, how people understand uh, science to produce knowledge as it's uh, put forward in these science fictions. Uh, an example an example is uh, the facts in the case of uh, Monsieur Valdemar, which is a classic uh, Poe story in which someone is uh, hypnotized and uh, dies under hypnosis and then is able to like communicate through their hypnotized body with the uh, with the doctors and famously says the line, "I am dead," which you know it's it's a sentence that in theory you shouldn't be able to say. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, this, this is, uh, you know, he's, he's talking about almost like the idea, I think he uses the phrase impossible facts. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, impossible facts. Yeah. Which are the, I mean, frankly, they're the novums of science fiction. They're the things that science fiction introduces that are not true and cannot be true and therefore tell you that this is science fiction. Yeah. Unlike the untrue facts of everyday given world fiction zero world fiction which you know a fictional story about me doing something i've never done is still proposing facts that are untrue but there's a real difference between that and a story of me going to the moon because i cannot currently do that so it is an impossible fact yes uh-huh. but yeah this this section also has a bunch of stuff about like um Really, I think really interesting stuff about stories that concern themselves with uh, inabilities to understand or analyze or failures of understanding of science fiction stories when they were uh, when they were published or even now. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. It's all about how can colonial science fiction stories be understood or how do they understand things, um, or sorry, early science fiction stories through these colonial uh, means of knowing. Um, and also of- how, how, is a, how are, like, um, you know, colonial ways of understanding themselves about, um, like, understanding the impossible? Um, yes. Because that's the way that, like, the colonial other is, is perceived. Yeah, yeah, the... Um, the question of, uh, I think the term used often is radical difference, the idea that we've you've set up this intense difference between people, and now you want to communicate across that difference or understand them. Um, you know, the, the possibility within the colonial structure of understanding the colonial subject, the other, um, 
is to some extent uh, pushed away, because if you can understand them and they're a human like you, then suddenly that really changes this dimension, whereas if they're in some way radically different and impossible to understand, if they are uh, not accessible in some way, then that difference uh, can justify all sorts of things. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is definitely one of those uh, chapters that ha it has like three texts it really closely considers, I think, which are The Red One by Jack London, uh, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, I think gets, or is that the next one? Um, uh, no, no, yeah, this, is, this is the Wells. This is The Time Machine. Yeah. Um. Uh, but no, this is an interesting chapter. I think it's a lot... Oh, four of them. Sorry. There's also the, uh, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, this one. Oh, you know, on rereading this chapter, like skimming over it, I'm realizing there were a lot more stories discussed than I'd remembered. It's just that yeah. they don't have a single unifying fantasy or figure the way that some of the other, uh, collections have. And so it's much easier to sort of mentally disaggregate them. Yeah, there he has this kind of uh, I I would say rather charming um, way of organizing the chapter where he uh, as as he um, puts it in the uh, introduction um, like not the introduction the, the first paragraph of the chapter. Since we are dealing with facts, let us proceed like the narrator of the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar along good journalistic lines. Uh, so we will proceed to ask who, where, when, and what are the interpretive dilemmas or dramas of interpretation. Um, so so there's there's the section about uh, who, the dislocated subject. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the section about where, generic borders, and the permutations of analogy, etc. Um, oh, yeah, and yeah, looking at, looking at it over in that sense again, yes. And these are generally pretty coherent clusters. Like, the who, although they cover so much ground, the who is, facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar, Flatland and the Valley of the Blind uh, by Wells. Yeah. Um, I, I think this chapter might be the one that covers the most ground. Yeah, no, I think it does. Again, I don't, it doesn't have a unifying uh, figure the way that the Lost Race fantasy does or, uh, you know, again, the uh, big-headed future man-baby. Uh, does <laughs> what I? It is an important no, I, element a, of this book. It totally is. It's it's a it's a relevant uh, phrasing. I just it is funny, and you know that. Yeah, no, I do. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. So there's concerns about like the subject who cannot, uh, who does not have the senses necessary to communicate uh, everything that is occurring, who is unable to fully understand their surroundings and who must attempt to compress them into something knowable. There's the uh, question of like uh, genre borders and understanding what a book is like trying to do or say as a place where this uh, drama of interpretation can play out. Yeah, and and that um, yeah, it's interesting. That's the where section, but it's not really about um, like actual Places. kind of place and setting. It's it's really about where the narrative is placed generically. Yes, um, and I found that super interesting. Um, especially, I really liked the way that he broke down the um, the frame narrative of one of his texts, which is called uh, Let's see, what what is it called? It has kind of a long name. A strange manuscript found in a copper cylinder. Yeah. Um, 
in which, um, you know, there's there's four characters who have found uh, said manuscript, um, which is, uh, like, about... Um, and I, I think the, the manuscript that they've found is itself, like, a lost race story, is that right? Yes, it's about an expedition and... Uh, the expedition's experience with uh, various people uh, in an Arctic, Antarctic, uh, lost race. Yes. Um, and so there are these uh, these four, like, uh, four um, guys sailing on a yacht who've discovered this narrative, um, and they're basically arguing over what type of fiction it is. Or rather, sorry, what type of narrative it is, because uh, yeah. only one of them conclusively says it is fiction yes the Um, the summary is uh the first one is like well we shouldn't necessarily believe everything we read so don't take this too seriously second one yes because this is obviously untrue it's a fantastic story it's made it's make-believe the third one says well it has scientific plausibility and the fourth one says uh and the narrative and culture it's describing here is actually connected to like believable traditions and cultural ideas and things that matter when you're thinking about like death and the other and so on so maybe take it more seriously than those first two guys said because this is an argument right for people putting forward different opinions yeah and um yeah actually i guess there's actually five of them um because there's uh there's one character who is just not interested in it (laughs) 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 um uh oh yeah sorry one of the missing ones is uh is that this is like satirical this comments on our own society yeah that was my mistake it's the first one is don't care second one is because it's fiction third one is uh but but it is scientifically plausible and it's satirical and it has things to say and so that's like the set of things this is uh as uh, reader points, sorry, writer points out, this is a theorization of science fiction. This is like putting forward, okay, yes, it's fiction and it's fundamentally fun. It's you know, it's just you don't need to care too much. Don't take it too seriously. But here's reasons why you might get something out of it, which is exactly what you have to explain to uh, undergraduate students if you're going to attempt to get them to read science fiction well in a class. So like, good job there. And um, what what uh, to sort of draw this back to the thesis of the book, um, in order to like as, as almost like a necessary part of this uh, theorization of the genre of this text, um, colonialism is like interwoven into it, um, and uh, specifically um, in the uh, in the commentary of the character who is basically saying like this has something to say, mm-hmm. um, this this. Uh, this narrative is like an an estranged commentary, not just like satirical, but um, like an estranged discussion of not just our own society, but um, human experience. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he that discussion itself is uh, anthropological, um, and it it draws upon like um, as uh, to 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 quote. His juxtaposition of troglodytic ritual, Buddhist philosophy, and Sophoclean tragedy is typical of anthropology in the developmental model, insofar as it draws upon, I don't love that he just uses this somewhat uncritically, primitive Asian and antique sources as parallel exhibits. Um, so this this anthropological way of saying, like, okay, um, 
you know, uh, current day, like exoticized culture. And, and the, I think troglodytic ritual is the, um, like it, it's, a it's, it's meant to be like a, 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 a real world, um, culture. Yes. Uh, it's, it's referring to a culture that I do not believe we have any, I don't know. This is, it's possible that are, it's a, the kind of culture that shows up in like wondrous journey narratives a lot who are claimed to uh, live in caves in a particular region and have certain rituals that maybe don't really resemble uh, a real world society in the sort of versions that are claimed about them. Yes. And what he's trying to discuss actually to like get down to the content of the, uh, of the narrative in the cylinder is um, the, the Kosekin people, the, the lost race who are being discussed Um they have this, like, love of death. Um, and so the comparisons that uh, the frame narrative character is making are to other, like, to him, real-world cultures that have some kind of uh, some kind of version of that. Or a um, different relationship to death than the, uh, colo- the, uh, the implied reader who is, you know, a white uh, colonial subject in the metropole would have towards death yeah and there is this sort of fundamentally um you know uh there there is that that being the kind of ultimate resolution or not necessarily the ultimate resolution but that being maybe the most complex most thoughtful discussion of this narrative um there is like a kind of anti-progress implication to this whole story um yeah, there's a satirical element. Yeah. In yeah. which the, the dominant ideology is challenged or, or critiqued. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, you know, the chapter then continues on with uh, these other uh, categories. Uh, and I do want to point out that I think this chapter, because it covers so much ground and its individual examples are often quite uh, strange, because it doesn't have a single unifying thing like the Lost Race story, uh, I think we could get really bogged down here. So do we want to maybe yeah. pick one or two more examples from this one to discuss a little bit and then move on to the later chapters? Yeah, that might not be a bad idea. I'm trying to think about like um, what... I'm I'm looking through my highlights to see what uh, I would prefer to focus on the most. Yeah, I did um, want to I do want to talk about the red one, which is the last example in the chapter and sort of its culminating example. Yes, uh, definitely. Let's talk about the red one. Yeah, um, but possibly I just want to briefly mention that there's an interesting reading of a crystal age, which is a uh, it's one of a variety of novels that uh, come out in the. Um, in the period that's under discussion in the book, which are about like, you know, like the sleeper wakes or looking backwards where a person from our time, contemporary, by which we mean like Victorian uh, England, uh, falls asleep and wakes up some great distance in the future, uh, whether that's a hundred years or a few thousand. And uh, this is also the model that the time traveler is like energizing and going even further with because the time traveler can move back and forth at will uh whereas and can visit multiple times that's hg wells the time traveler i mean but do you, uh, in do you this, mean the time machine the time machine yes i i meant the time traveler from the time machine yes uh yeah. but in 
uh, a crystal age and a number of these other things, you get this juxtaposition of uh, a modern day, by which we mean, again, Victorian uh, person with some kind of future society, whether that society or the image of a future society that may have collapsed back into feudalism or, you know, become weird and alien or become a socialist utopia. There's a variety of these different things, but they become a the when element, the way of, like, thinking about uh, the future, progress, colonial assumptions. And this book is really interesting, A Crystal Age, because basically all the reviews are negative. Everyone's just like, this was weird and alienating and I didn't really understand the point and the people don't act like people. And, uh... Uh, Ryder has the really interesting reading of, yes, that is the point. Everything that is going on here is that humans have changed the culture-nature relationship of themselves and the rest of the world. They are socially organized like hive insects. They have, uh, instead of having the sort of always-on, uh, you know, uh, fertility and sexual availability of humans, they have uh, very specific, only one couple in a given house is reproductive, everyone else there just goes about their lives. They do not reproduce, there's, you know, houses are not built, they're just sort of part of the landscape now. It's this really weird image of a sort of completely naturalized human culture. By naturalized, I mean the people in this culture make no distinction between nature and their cultural decisions, and they, you know, to some extent, this is both the, like, total annihilation of the concept of progress, but also it's this very weird other world. And the, the argument uh, Ryder makes is nobody was able to perceive the weird thing the author was doing, in part because he's not an amazing re uh, writer, and so it wasn't, like, fully understood properly. Yeah, yeah. Um... It is interesting that it's so focused on sex. Um, yes. Or, or, like, the, the entire kind of narrative of A Crystal Age seems to really be about uh, Smith, the narrator. You know, he falls in love with a woman of this world, but, like, he can't have her because, you know, because of the, the social arrangement that they have. Well, yeah, yeah, um, and even beyond social arrangement, it's like... It's a single change, like future dystopia, utopia, whatever, and the change is, or at least the one that becomes the crux of the plot and is sort of the defining one of the rest is humans are like every other animal on Earth in a certain sense, and part of that is they don't have romance, sexual relationships of these kinds, stuff like that. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, a, and it's a real weird reading, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it was very interesting. And it, it is, um, just to broaden it a little bit, just to uh, uh, show the kind of, like, point that he's making with this, that um, the time travel plot, um, like, one of the things that it is about, or one of the things that it uh, explores, is the opposition between nature and culture. Yeah. Um, because, because, essentially, on some level, like... Uh, Going into a a future society, this is a place where ostensibly, um, you know, basically that that becomes a a, a place where the, that relationship can be fundamentally rearranged. Um, yes, and the the line uh, Ryder uses here is. Uh, 
A Crystal Age is a deliberately ambiguous utopia, and probably not intentionally, a somewhat opaque satire on the difficulty, and almost manically, if narrowly acquisitive English traveler, suffers in understanding what a radically foreign culture does and does not offer him. But this opacity is the price it pays for its remarkably inventive and difficult accomplishment as science fiction, and, and my take on this is, I think it's a really interesting thing to read about, and I think it was included here in part because Ryder went, nobody has read this correctly before, and I really want to set the record straight. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a very, like, I think, I think probably everyone um, encounters it, everyone who is, like, engaged in this type of intellectual work encounters at some point um, the book where they're like, no, 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 you don't see. This is so interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I did find reading about it interesting. I thought the description of it and what it's doing was really interesting. But I also think that it's a little bit like, you had to find a place for it somewhere, and this kind of weird chapter that veers around quite a bit and is like about, I mean, is effectively about cognitive estrangement. It's about the experience of estrangement as part of the uh the function going on here is about that kind of estrangement uh it fits i guess yeah 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 uh there's a reading of the time machine which i honestly i, I don't think we need to cover mostly because uh he even says that the time machine needs no elucidation it's like uh it's such a discussed thing in science fiction studies especially the Suvinian tradition yeah. Shall we then get on into the red one? And sure. Radical difference? Yeah. The red one is... Oh, what a... What a story and what a reading of a story. Like, yeah. The, should I run through, like, a brief synopsis of this Jack London story? Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. So the basic concept is that this uh, guy, Bassett, I believe... Uh, Yes, Bassett, who's a, um, he's off in, uh, in a colonial region, the Solomon Islands, because, uh, so named because of the diamonds, so referencing King Solomon's mines, um, that is, uh, being colonized, it's being extracted, and there's a weird noise that keeps being heard, and that there's an interest in, that sounds like nothing of this earth, and so he sets out to discover the source of this with an expedition, they run into problems, the, uh, you know, the native people around this location that they're going to are, uh, I mean, very straightforwardly, like, bloodthirsty, sacrifice people, etc. Bassett eventually manages to discover that there is a an alien spacecraft, like a big red sphere of metal that fell from the sky and that now that is the red one and the and it is the source of the noise and the uh, people in this region make like human sacrifice to it. And so the story is about him like trying by hook or by crook, including uh, there is, you know, here we have a bit of the lost race structure. We have a treasure. We have that the locals do not understand. They're worshipping it as a god. And uh, an evil priest, Nagurn, the priest who sacrifices people to the Red One. And there's sort of a princess in that there's a woman who falls in love with Bassett. Uh, but importantly to the structure of the Red One, uh, because he's wildly racist, he finds her incredibly repulsive. And so uh, treats her horribly and just, like, uses her... Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I was going to say, just straightforwardly exploits her to gain access to the Red One. Exactly. And the 
the end of the story is that he actually is captured and makes the deal that he is going to let himself be executed because i mean he doesn't really have much choice but he'll he will be ritually sacrificed but it will allow him to see the red one at the time it makes the noise and so he will get the knowledge that he has been seeking on this whole quest and the final scene is that he is before the red one he is as he's about to have his head been uh chopped off with an axe he witnesses that the sound is made by the natives hammering a huge piece of wood against the red one, which rings like an alien bell. And then he's yeah. beheaded, and that's the end of the story. Uh, so this is Jack London being at his Jack Londoniest. Uh, Maybe explain what you mean by that. I mean that there's a number of Jack London stories that are basically guy goes into wilderness. Like, famously, To Start a Fire is one of the, like, big Jack London stories. Because he did a bunch of, like, wilderness stories, survival stories. And To Light a Fire is all about how someone who has been working in, like, a Yukon logging camp and is going from one to another makes a series of small mistakes that lead to him freezing to death in the woods. And that's the entire story. Uh, right. It's it's very dramatic. It's very tense, but it fundamentally is about this like confrontation of man against nature. And it's very much man, right? It's like man uh, and nature, and the fact that you can lose, and the fact yes. that you could. The story can just end with you dying, and in this particular case, you get this very like the the reading being done uh, here is that there's this like intense structure of colonial ideology. Um, which Ryder says is the strongest mark of colonial ideology on the red one is the overriding ambivalence that makes itself felt at every level at which one attempts to approach the text. Uh, because, you know, Bassett doesn't learn anything. It's not present. Ultimately, there's this moment of like, he hears the noise, he's seeing how it's created, he's had this understanding, and it's like he's, you know, been witness to this incredible thing. And then he remembers that he is about to die, and nobody will know about this, and nobody believed him when he went off to look for it. There's this uh, incredibly racist uh, moment, which is, uh, the irony is, quote, uh, This wonderful messenger, winged with intelligence across space, to fall into a Bushman stronghold, was as if Jehovah's commandments had been presented on carved stone to the monkeys of the monkey cage at the zoo. Which, incredible racism, right? Like, that's just vile statement there. Right. And this irony is either, and I think this is the reading that the book kind of wants to pull out of it, is a commentary on Bassett's own inability to create knowledge, uh, to actually understand the other or communicate that this entire story is about colonialism's failure to create knowledge or its inability to see anything but itself, to turn between poles but never actually get anywhere, um... But at the same time, I think that you can just read this as racist. Like, you can just read this as the irony of the story, the fact that it ends with his death, is all around the idea that here is this incredible artifact from space that he thought was, like, calling out and communicating that is, in fact, just being hit like a drum, and the people who have it just don't understand what they have, and they think it's a god. Uh, yeah, I feel like the big, like, question here is... Does the do you think the red one is meant to actually contain some kind of message or knowledge, or is it just like a giant metal rock? Um, like because Bassett is like sure that it is, you know. Um, From the reading here, I'm inclined to say 
this object as an artifact surely contains useful information about the universe at large in some sense. Like, the way it's being presented is it is this unique object in the world that seems to have come from elsewhere and been made by an intelligence. Or at least that's the approach that the story seems to be taking, because, I mean, again, I don't I just have a hard time believing that that phrase I quoted was meant ironically, given what else Jack London writes. Yeah, no, that's completely fair. And I have not read the red one, so, like, yeah, I think we're... I'd have to read it to really make a decision on that, you know? But I hear what you're saying. Yes, and fundamentally, you know, I think the reading of this as, like, this displays these this rotation of colonial understanding and failure to understand that the uh that the ultimate irony of this story is that bassett does not actually acquire any more knowledge than uh the people than uh Nagurn, the you know the evil priest of the of this but i think that fundamentally from the sections even that we have quoted here it's very clear that Nagurn is meant to be like superstitious and evil and uh when he promises uh bassett the um that he will tell once he has his severed head that he will be shrinking because of course they do actual head shrinking in this because we're just doing a bunch of racist colonial things in this story he'll tell that head many secrets and so there's a very explicit thing where bassett is like so close to learning things and then it's it's snatched away and impossible and death intercedes but again, by analogy to something like To Light a Fire, I don't think this is to say that that information was not accessible or not present or could not be known, but rather that the irony is that by failing in his colonial effort to extricate and appropriate that knowledge, Bassett came so close and never got it. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um... So yeah, that's just... This is where my, that ambiguity between is the work itself... Are we just reading it to find how it expresses this colonial ideology in ways that maybe are not even visible to the the author and the audience at the time? Or would is this supposed to be read as a satire that communicated satire at the time, rather than a very straightforward horror story? Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I don't think I have any more to add to that. Do you want to maybe move on to the next chapter? Yeah, I don't like thinking about the red one too much. It it's just awful that's fair um you are the one who was like let's talk about this i know because i felt it was really illustrative of something going on in the book yeah no it is it is like okay there's a there's an early line in the book which i think is interesting which is basically uh that um we shouldn't take for granted that these underlying critical or satirical elements went over the heads of readers because even if we assume this is all written purely for markets purely for like pleasure because there's a pleasure in understanding something and like seeing through it basically and this gets connected to his sort of uh criticism of suvin where he's basically like uh suvin's critical science fiction is also just it's a different kind of pleasure and not any less sort of marketable or a thing people publish to read and so the question then becomes what, like, pleasure or enjoyment are we see- seeing or supposed to be seeing in some of these works that are, uh, is it, 
Is it supposed to be symptomatic reading where we're looking for like the deep structures of colonialism? Or is it, you know, no, this was intended to dis to display those and expose them. Is that yeah, how people yeah. would have read it at the time? Oh. Okay, so uh, so chapter four. Yep. Artificial yep. humans and the construction of race. Yeah. Um, this this chapter it really discusses two different types of artificial human. The like. Uh, what is he what what words does he use for them like the um basically the uh the the like created human yeah. and the cyborg yeah um, i mean i think it covers the thing is even the um I, I think I would actually call it the missing link and the cyborg because both of them mm. are presented as created in the same way because the uh, the missing link example is uh, the the big example is not Frankenstein though he has to talk about Frankenstein because obviously right but the big example is Doctor Moreau where animals are made into sort of pseudo humans oh hybrid and cyborg Those yes the hybrid and the cyborg thank you yes and. Um. The, the cyborg is basically the big-headed baby man from the far future. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's... Something that he explicitly says he is not saying um, is that the, like, hybrid represents non-white people and the cyborg represents white people. Yes. Um, because that's, you know, way A too... A facile reading, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... Although he then goes on to say that, like, uh, and, and this is in the case of uh, Frankenstein's uh, creature, that uh, while the sort of a certain reading of Frankenstein, a colonial reading of Frankenstein in which the creature is like the, um, a native population is like, is the, um, is that may not have been present in its initial publication and readings. It may not have been present in, like, Shelley's era, but in the by the time of its republication in the 1880s, that that is the reading people would have had, which is again part of that like now it's science fiction, also now it's colonial. Yeah, yeah, no, that's like I find that very interesting the way that he kind of like he goes into even like um, some real like uh, you know direct analysis of the the language and and to say yes. like okay here are here are some here are some things that uh in in the context um i mean literally in the context of the romance revival of the late 19th century however the creature's early confusion and wonder at the world would look less like individual psychology than racial anthropological difference um and so like there are these you know these when uh in in the creature's like narrative of his own life when he talks about like his first experiences um the suggestion is you know for shelley uh originally this has to do with you know he's like a uh, again to quote a lockean tabula rasa um but that for the victorians he's like uh you know uh a, a, quote -a native primitive. colonial subject yeah yeah exactly yeah no it's it's an interesting moment and it's a it's basically trying to connect in this story of, you know, like, the artificial human, right? Like, I think it's fair to say that Frankenstein's creature is the sort of 
fundamental and defining thing that when you talk especially academically about science fiction about artificial humans if you're not going to talk about frankenstein you're in trouble um, yeah no i think that's fair and so um, it feels like a little bit of this is basically saying well my method of reading my way of approaching what this means at a given time means that i can basically say we should interpret frankenstein via these other works that exist at this moment that are doing this same thing you know your dr moreau's your uh you know there was um the quickening of caliban a modern story of evolution published 1893 and things like that that frankenstein is now to be measured among their number rather than looked at in its original romantic context because this is the context it's really entering science fiction yeah which i um. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I think it does lead to, with the uh, the larger category that it's looking at, is quite interesting. So I'm I'm willing to say that I don't I don't really care that much if Frankenstein fits into it. If you see what I mean? Yeah. No, I think that's fair. Uh, uh, there's actually a very the um there's one example, the Curse of Intellect, which I'd never heard of before, which is about someone using like uh, hypnosis and and like aggressive Skinner box style training to take an ape and make it like sapient and uh, human effectively presenting the idea that the distinction between those two is primarily cultural and social uh, with the specific purpose of the scientist to create someone that can comment on humanity from the outside and and it fails yes oh. it it fails the um the the narrator the of beast. the story the beast yes the ape uh ultimately says uh nope you can't get an objective viewpoint my viewpoint was completely uh shaped by the fact that my entire life was defined by a man with a whip uh and so i cannot become this extraordinary and here's a to be a huge dork this is the hegelian master slave dialectic like, this is specifically the idea that the master over the bondsman, by conquering them and forcing them to pay attention to the bondsman's needs and internality, causes the... Um, um, to, the to the master's needs and internality. Yes, to the master's right? needs, yeah. uh, causes the, the oppressed or the suppressed to become aware that other people exist outside of them in a way the master can't, because they simply have never had a reason to, and in fact have been further solipsized by their control over, uh, again, the Judith Butler uses the phrase master and bondsman rather than uh, master and slave, which is probably a better way, uh, makes it more comprehensible. But then the bondsman, who can then understand, learn, and potentially overthrow the master, has been changed by the dialectic, and that's where you get alpha bone, you get the, the sort of further sublation and development. And this is explicitly saying, nope, doesn't happen, you just get fucked up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or at the very um, least, you don't get something, or alternatively, you can read it in a Hegelian way rather than an anti-Hegelian way and say, yeah, you get a sublation which is not separate from the original. Like, by creating this, this ape person, you have created something that is a hybrid, that has part of your perspective as well, or is in reaction to your perspective, so you're still not getting some kind of objective, pure truth. There is no outside. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, so this is uh, this is interesting within a colonial context, obviously, because this is talking about the idea of enforcing social change and that kind of catastrophe on colonial subjects to turn them into something else. And 
how they're going to feel about it and how this author thinks they would feel about it. Yeah, and there's a real, like, kind of uh, complication between, like, well, uh, has has the beast been, like, has the beast been fundamentally transformed? Is that even possible? And it seems like he... Uh, is ambiguous on whether that's true. Yeah, the the beast's um, conclusion is whatever the stand no no creature of God can see or write truth. Whatever the standpoint, the outlook is distorted and falsified by the glamour and deception of social circumstances. And again, this is an ape, not a human who has been you know uh, has been made intelligent, but is saying social circumstances that the only distinction between this ape. Uh, being an ape and being a sort of hybrid is social again but then like two sentences before that he says i am a monkey and my clothing of hair though from god determines my judgment of all existence um so it's like is is it social circumstance or is it like the biological reality of him being an ape that can't be changed yeah or um or are those are is that a social circumstance as well as a natural one is everything social Yes. Yeah, so a lot of hay is made, really interesting uh, reading there. And similarly, uh, you know, the island of Dr. Moreau, where you have uh, surgical but also social interventions to create hybrids there, is a very colonial narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, And again, this also gets us the rotation, because it's not just like, oh, uh, how do we analogize this? It's also, well, what does this say about... Uh, the way in which colonial, uh, you know, structures understand themselves. Is Dr. Moreau the the man with a, you know, with a scalpel who's attempting to create human beings and sees himself as, like, evolution itself? Like, he sees himself not as uh, interacting with other human beings, but simply as doing, like, nature's work for her. Um, Is that... Uh, what does that say about the way colonial society thinks about nature and evolution and social change? Yeah, and I think here is a, a place where um, there's a, a really good like um, summary of the what he means by his argument here, but also his arguments in general about like the relationship between science fiction and colonialism and like colonial ideologies. Um, saying uh, about the island of Doctor Moreau. It is not so much a distorted metaphorical representation of colonialism as it is a literalization of the racist ideological fantasy that guides much colonial practice. We know very well that non-whites are human beings, but we behave under the assumption that they are grotesque parodies of humankind. Moreau's practice actually unfolds the ideological terms in reverse. He knows very well that his experimental subjects are not humans, um... But uh, by laboriously transforming them into grotesque parodies of humankind, he arrives, without any apparent intention of doing so, at the role of colonial master. And I think this in particular, like, this is a really good way of cutting through the problem that we were, like, turning over and turning over with the red one of, like, is this an intentional commentary on or is it just a repetition of... Well, with The Island of Dr. Moreau, it's neither of those things. It is yeah. a literaliz- literalization of almost like, okay, this concept has been taken and reversed, and like, how does that play out? And what does that then reveal about the thing that was taken and reversed? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also where we see uh, some of that really ambiguous relationship to Darwin as a figure. 
Mm. On page 110, there's both a citation of Darwin being like, uh, yeah, I think genocide's going to happen. Um, you know, uh, survival of the fittest occurs in human societies as well. And then uh, a paragraph later, um, it mentions that Darwin uh, in The Descent of Man pointed out the superficiality and incoherency of attempts to break humanity into separate species uh, by race because polygenists, that is to say people who thought that humans were multiple species, uh, against the monogenist uh, Darwin, who believes it's all from one single uh, root, all one single species, uh, Darwin pointed out that the there was no agreement on how many categories to separate humanity into, whether two or sixty-three, uh, as two extreme examples from his uh, that he shows, and that all of these are equally like unbelievable. None of them have a good basis. So you have on the same page two quotations of Darwin. One is sort of an arch social Darwinist on the lines of race, and in the other as like well-intentioned trying to argue against uh, racism with science, but racism isn't really scientific, and therefore Darwin's argument was doomed to failure. And it's, I don't know, you get a, the way the Darwinians show up in this book is very, I would have liked a little bit more on the scientific history of these ideas coming in, because I know that there is more on that, and I think that it gets treated as kind of a monolith. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think that might be a little bit outside the scope of this book, um, but I, I don't disagree with you that there's there's complexity here that's being a bit glossed over. Yeah, I think it's, from my perspective, it's that, uh, understandably, Ryder wants to cite Darwin and cite, like, these important, uh, important scientists of Darwinism, such as Darwin and uh, Russell Wallace, um, or Alfred Russell Wallace, and... Uh, with those citations show that these are like the colonial ideas that are in play in science that are being uh, interacted with and are being expressed through this science fiction. Uh, but it means that these figures end up being just sort of like a bank of citations. And by figures, I mean uh, Ru uh, Wallace and Darwin. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um do you want to maybe also talk about the way he talks about uh, cyborgs or really when he when he says cyborgs in, in these stories, the cyborg is really the, the hypertrophied brain character. Oh, um, you mean the uh, giant headed baby man from the far future? Yes, I do. Thank you. Um, Please use its correct title. <laughs> I'm not going to. It's 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 too long. No, um, come on. Oh, well. But, yeah, no, I just, I think it's interesting to note that that's what he's calling cyborgs, and, like, I do think they are, because they're always, like, Reliant on, on machines, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, um, but they're, they're also, well, most you know, of the them thing are... where they have giant brains and tiny limbs is, like, specific and important. <laughs> yes, that is, like, the only, we're not talking about uh, Molly Millions here, we're just talking about the giant-headed baby man from the far future. See, it can be fast. Um... But the uh, GHBMFFF uh, is interesting in a number of ways, not just, like, because the Martians from H.G. Wells are this, but also there's a number of stories about people, like, accelerating their own evolution and becoming these far-future baby men, and, uh, and then saying... Yes, I now have a right to own you because I am a more advanced thing. And it's like a lot of these stories very directly reproduce the exact social Darwinism that is, uh, 
you know, being discussed here, this sort of idea that there is a natural development of society that includes the annihilation or the control or ownership of, uh, quote-unquote, uh, less developed or less evolved uh, people, basically. Like, the, the fact that every far-future baby man in these stories is, like, deeply deeply dangerous to everyone around them and actively involved in trying to conquer the world that's important that's a big deal yeah yeah like um and uh he uh he he works this out in a paragraph on 115 that he then kind of summarizes in the next paragraph that uh the nature-culture opposition suspends the figure of the cyborg amidst the ideological contradictions and ambivalence surrounding notions of progress. So that there's there's some way, there there are these contradictions and, and these oppositions involved in progress, and these figures, I mean, they, they stand for, uh, like, you know, civilization, the future, uh, the mind versus the body, but then they also, in some kind of way like, undermine and um, destabilize and, and, like, or maybe not so much undermine as rather, like, show and discuss the way these um, these things are already contradictory um, and, and yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, um, they, ex- they expose that these categories are then primarily used in the justification of some kind of horrific violence. Like, again, I think the thing that's most telling about all of these stories is that the giant-headed baby man from the far future always then immediately has to either be... It has to be kill or be killed. Like, there's no example of uh, just simple... uh, functional uh, toleration between small brains and big brains. Uh, yes. small, us small heads are always either going to be uh, enslaved by them or destroy them. And that is, like, biological. Like, the, yes. the, the, the cyborgs, um, as he puts it, that they have a physically determined inability to feel mercy, a spectacular display of anatomy as destiny. Um, which, yeah. like, that itself... It, it, they, they are, like, genetically racist. Yes, they are... They are both the products of some kind of eugenics or mutation, or like they're always presented as the products of a of of technology acting on the human body and mind, and they always produce uh, something that will itself do more eugenics. Only now it's going to look back and see all the you know all the humans that it's left behind and go, yeah, no, you also have to go. Yeah. So yeah, it's. And, you know, in this, I think the very simple reading and the very straightforward one is that you can see the bad conscience of the colonial project, which is expressed literally in H.G. Wells, which is, uh, you know, and this is the simplistic version, is, man, if someone came along and acted to us as we act to others, we'd probably dislike that. Uh, That's like the very simplistic version. But then there's sort of a grappling with different justifications for that. Like, there's, it's not just a... Uh, oh, we're treating people badly. Rather, it's what kind of justifications can we put together for why we in particular deserve to not be treated that way? And you get different, like, variations of that and rotations of it. Um, You get these attempts to frame, uh, you know, modern humanity, by which we mean the, the colonial center, as still deserving to put up some kind of fight against the far future and against the the cyborg the big brain um 
and it it's weird it's interesting yeah like and it's interesting how this chapter ends as well yeah he he kind of uh skips ahead to um he he looks at two uh two science uh science fiction magazine covers um one from amazing stories uh 1926 and one from science wonder stories in 1929 um yeah there's a number and, of moments in the in the book where there's like visual images mostly cover pictures uh discussed but not a ton of them actually yeah um and these, see, I think even more so than, like, talking about the stories or novels that he discusses where we have to, like, summarize them, these, I think, are going to be very hard to talk about when you can't look at the pictures. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't planning on talking about them in detail. I just wanted to talk about, like, the the move that is made at the very end in terms of uh, analysis, not, like, just reading it out, but, like, the specific thing about, like, the spectator, the observer, the observer to the experiment, because as he points out, these kinds of experiments that produce artificial life always need an observer besides the scientist to see them. Uh, the filmic version of Frankenstein in the 1930s puts three other people and his assistant, who is not treated like a person by the film, in the room with Victor when he creates life. Uh, yeah. There's this, um, and so, sorry, go on. Uh, just, like, to make sure no one gets confused, he's not, uh, the scientist is not Victor in the movie. Victor You're right, his like name's buddy. Henry, because... Because they had to confuse us. Because they made bad decisions, yes. Um, but the, uh, the cyborg and the hybrid become, and I think this is a core part of the, the book overall, the idea is they become viewpoints from which to view the present day, or if the present day to view alienated, estranged versions of these colonial constructions. And what you end up with is this constant shuttling back and forth between different viewpoints and different works or within the same work. And the final argument is that this is a kind of pleasure, that yeah. uh, one finds um, that the reader's you know, to some extent, this shuttling of the cy the cyborg, is the, the big brain baby man from the far future, is a spectacle to look at, is a spectacle to have happen in a story, and that you can, like, be grossed out by them, or impressed by them, or at war with them, and to some extent that pleasure, the fact that these figures are becoming things that you can put in a story and put on a front cover and things like that, and that you look back and forth and you see these things in yourself or in others... Ultimately, it's all just kind of fun and energizing, and the critical potential, quote, uh, um, For if all this maps out the reception of colonial and imperial practices by the homeland audience, not as deliberate allegory, but in the ideological and epistemological framework the artist brings to visibility, it nonetheless remains a scene of spectacular pleasures, without which its critical potential would remain forever mute. And I think that's yeah. an interesting statement to make here. There's other mentions of pleasure throughout the book, such as the idea that the Lost Race story provides pleasure to its general audience of getting to partake, at least sort of fictively, in the looting of the colonial uh, scene. Marrying the princess is not something, I mean, really anyone gets to do, but you get to imagine yourself as taking part in that. And so you, the you know proletariat of England, get to read about the kind of thing that the English state is doing with imperialism elsewhere. There's also the idea of, um, this shows up in the time machine reading as well, of like, uh, 
you of the um you of the colonial center uh who are reading this the popular audience are the morlocks to uh the eloy of the upper class but maybe you're also the eloy to the morlocks of the rest of the world or maybe because you're feeding on them you are more morlocks to the innocent eloy of the rest of the world and this sort of back and forth of different ways you can see it provides the opportunity for pleasure rather than pure criticism yeah and i think this is an interesting like uh like, there's a question, I think, that, you know, kind of uh, hangs over this whole book, which is, like, so is science fiction, like, critical or celebratory, right, of of colonialism? And obviously the answer to that is not going to be yes or no, or, like, one or the other. Um, mm-hmm. But this is an interesting exploration of that, where he essentially says on some level that the the celebratory, the, the pleasure in observing these um these narratives and these perspectives is also what allows for the critical potential which is a really interesting claim yeah yeah no i think that is an interesting claim and i think that it's very tied up with the you know the place where i differ which is the idea that we're looking at the public the public perception the idea that the critical is also a form of pleasure, or at least it takes that form in uh, the development of a science fictional mode. Um, but I think that the the complex place for me is that it's assuming a lot about what the pleasures of the audience at the time were like in reading these things in ways that feel very hard to confirm or deny. And, you know, I get that. I, I have also made that kind of cl- uh, claim. Claiming that something is a pleasure in a literary reading can often mean I can enjoy this, therefore other people can enjoy this, right? Yeah. You know, one thing that I also think is very interesting, given, you know, the basic topic of this book, is that it really is all about the, you know, the white readership the the by and large the white english readership of these books and yes like obviously the you know the kind of commercial base of the publishing of these books is like a white working class audience but that doesn't mean that people of color didn't read them right um again like obviously yeah <laughs> like, i mean i i will say i don't know that it's necessarily i mean i think fundamentally you're more often seeing a class description of the readership than a racial one. Um, and I think that that is intentional. There's also some discussion about how it's like the the upwardly mobile middle class were the known readership for this, like the, the technical class, people who were doing, like, getting some engineering training, who are expecting to work at a slightly higher level in a factory. This isn't straightforwardly... Um, like the uh, broader mass of factory workers, there's a slightly more uh, specific readership for science fiction. Yeah, no, that's true. But like, I guess I'm just saying, I think that like that something one could have expected from like the title of the book or the, the broad concept is that it would be that the book itself would be kind of like looking back at the colonial perspective. But it really is, for the most part, sitting inside the um the perspective of the um you know the 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 metropole um and i think that's interesting and not a not a bad thing because that's like a a valid 
place for analysis. Um, but it makes me want the alternative as well. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how much of an archive you'd have for that relative to reading the reading stories very, very much primarily written by white men and to an well, audience that is assumed to be like that. Well, I'm talking about something that would be less about, like, uh, fully sort of situating these narratives, like, historically into what their likely dominant audience was and mm-hmm. more of a, like, resistant reading type of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that I think that would be interesting, but, I, yeah, I, I, think, I think just methodologically I don't know how well that... You'd have to change not- some things, yeah. Yeah, no, it's fundamentally not what this book is even a little bit. It's it's a it's a set of ideas that this book makes me think about. That's fair. Uh, we should probably touch on the last chapter. Uh yeah. it is it's not it's not a bad chapter. Like I don't I don't think I think chapter three is the one where it has so much going on, but I can't necessarily say that it coheres as much for me as some of the other chapters. Chapter four coheres pretty clearly, the hybrid and the uh, cyborg are definitely things, even though I wouldn't have called it the cyborg. Uh, I would have mm-hmm. called it the uh, giant brain baby man from the far future. But yeah, you, uh, not only would you have, you did many times. And if I keep doing it, people will remember that instead of cyborg, and I'll have won. <laughs> yeah. Um, chapter five, I I felt it was a little bit like. Um, so chapter five, Visions of Catastrophe, is all about, like, uh, you know, future catastrophes. And I, like, I'm not sure how much... It sounds like you just, you don't have a particular overarching sense of this chapter. Yeah, yeah, I guess this chapter didn't stick in my mind as much as the others. Yeah, I think um, that part of it is that it, uh, you know, again, unlike uh, unlike the uh, Lost Race story or the uh, the Hybrid and the Cyborg, I think this covers a wider ground. Um, yeah. And I think that some of the ground it covers is pretty solid. Uh, I think that its discussion of different, like, I mean, fundamentally, uh, again, it's going back to War of the Worlds, which is, I think, a crucial text for this whole book. Um, You know, Wells is obviously a major writer in this whole book, uh, where it discusses, like, how major changes in, uh, of the future to the place get presented. You've got that feudal future of England, you've got that, uh, you've got the uh, invasion by the Martians, um, You know, one of the sections is purification and hyperbolic violence, which is about, like, reaction stories where the, um, like, there's a, someone wrote a sequel to War of the Worlds, not, you know, not Wells here, that is about Edison reverse engineering the Martians' weapons and then an American-led globe that have unified into a single industrial base uh, go back to Mars and fucking blow it up. Like, just kill millions of Martians uh, and just, like, strike back. And I think the unifying theme in this one is, again, about social Darwinism. It's about how these ideas of survival of the fittest, of a fight unto extinction, of a uh, resource battle over the world which are deeply entrenched in a lot of, like, colonial justifications um, and, to some extent, colonial anxieties, 
then become expressed through uh, science fiction in a number of ways. The... Yeah, I think I, I wanted to because you just sort of described the the central the the second um, element mm, of yeah, like, yeah. He, there's a three part structure here. Yeah. Um. So the 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 titles of the three sections are the mighty humbled 1871 to 1898, purification and hyperbolic violence 1893 to 1934, and finally contagion 1938 to 1946. So he he periodizes these yes uh, tales of catastrophe. Um, and the first period is what's also called Tales of Future War, which was a genre, a proto-science fictional genre that develops in the Victorian area from, I want to say, 1871 uh, and onward with stories of the next big war. Basically, uh, Europe had had a bunch of wars during this period. You have increasingly technologized uh, warfare and someone publishes a book that's basically a polemic about how England needs to change up its defense and uh, defense spending and trade policies, or else Germany is going to roll over them in the next war, from a, a British person, obviously. And this sets off an entire uh, genre of people going, no, the next war is going to look like this. And occasionally they have technology. Wells gets a little bit involved. I think uh, there are elements of the sort of techno-scientific future but a lot of them are really just about, if we don't, you know, do things politically correctly, if we don't do the kind of budgets I think make sense, we're going to lose. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, then... and they're also, so, some of the, um, some of these are also not so much future wars as they are, like, uh, other, like, after London, for example. Yes. Um, other ways in... that uh, that English society could collapse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, and these, you know, there's an obvious comparison, which is like imagining the kind of things that happen to a uh, colonized society happening to England, very straightforwardly, um, and thinking about like what that means and what it involves, representing different kinds of like you know, of other futures, this idea of the future and the past, the idea of being relegated to the past in one of those interactions. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, the hyperbolic violence is this period of sort of uh, response to that in some ways, uh, which gives us um, these revenge fantasies and these sort of justifications of uh, of responding to even just like competition over resources with hideous and hyperbolic violence uh yeah yeah they're basically he he finds like a whole bunch of narratives about like oh yeah uh you know about like genocide yes um, and like often it's like we're striking back we're fighting back uh and then that ultimately justifies doing all sorts of horrible things um and it also starts to hyperbolically increase the violence done by the invaders, which leads up to an example of uh, um, genocidal violence is reduced to such a reflex mechanism that, for example, John W. Campbell's The, Lax, the Last Evolution portrays a war between the Earth and invaders from outside the solar system in which the invaders' methods involve wiping out all life on the planet they intend to colonize. 
begging one to ask what value this humanoid species places in lifeless planets, not to mention why they do not go to the simpler route of simply appropriating lifeless planets in the first place, instead of taking the trouble to try and to kill all of the abundant, annoying life on a planet like Earth. And that has, like, an immediate uh, capacity for discussing sort of colonial projects, which is like... Uh, the idea that this conflict is so inherent, that colonialism is such an inherent part of the natural world, that a spacefaring intelligent species would specifically target the place with people on it and then try to wipe them out. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's also an example of a Jack London story that gets mentioned here. I'm trying to find the description that is basically described as like, this is just so horrible, I'm not even going to go into it, but it's bad. Uh, that's the unparalleled invasion, which, having read it, I agree. It's it's just a genocide fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. sorry, go on. I feel like the 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 section of this that I find most interesting is the last one, Contagion, nineteen thirty eight to nineteen forty six. No, I, I think I agree. I was looking for a little bit more to say about the um, you know, the section uh, the sections on. Uh, future war and stuff. I think it should be noted that uh, the War of the Worlds is a mighty, humbled, future war genre work, just making it extremely science fictional. That's like, to some extent, the ultimate example and the thing that changes the genre is the War of the Worlds takes the, like, what if Germany invaded? And it's like, what if Mars invaded? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a line here which is... Uh, Wells' accomplishment stems from his deep understanding of that fantastic appeal. Uh, first, for the myriad imperial competitors who, in the polemical logic of the future war genre, are always doing to us what we have what we have been or ought to be doing to them, Wells substitutes his distorted mirror image of invasive colonialists, the Martians. Second, while retaining the genre's fundamental narcissistic paranoia in the odd concentration on southern England that he gives the Martians' campaign of planetary conquest, Wells also explodes the genre's parochialism by expanding the terms that define empire so that nationalist competition disappears into or beneath the grander canvas of racial migration and species survival. So it's this place where uh, colonial anxieties get merged with uh, the sort of scientific epistemological ideas about how the world works at the larger level that makes the sort of colonial paranoia of what if someone else gets the upper hand into, like, the natural order of things, a constant battle for who gets the upper hand in colonizing each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so the final section, Contagion, you were saying. Yeah, this is about stories where, like, the, the form of invasion happening is one where uh, essentially the, the aliens are, like, replacing, like, um, like infiltrating humanity in order to replace Yeah, them. and there's a number of examples that go into—I in, really liked the last example because I thought it was really great for connecting the colonial logic to the science fiction— um, some of the, the examples include Who Goes There, which is the basis of John Carpenter's The Thing, um, and The Puppet Masters, which is Heinlein's thing about like little crab aliens that control your body, and uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, but I, I agree with you that Vintage Season is probably the most interesting of these. Um, yeah. Um, which is, uh, just to describe this a little bit, it's about uh, like time-traveling tourists. 
Yeah. Um, who, uh, like, they they go back in time, um, you know, in order to observe uh, the past. Um, but specifically, uh, it, it eventually turns out the thing that they're there to observe is a uh, meteor colliding with Earth that will, um, like, instigate a plague that will kill all the inhabitants of a city. Yeah, so this... And the core story is... Uh, the main character is renting a house to tourists, and it turns out the tourists are from the future, and the reason that he hasn't been able to, uh, the reason that he's frustrated at the beginning of the story is that the rates for all rentals and houses around here have gone up, up, up recently, but he got locked into a contract earlier, and so he can't benefit from it, and that's why he's, like, poking around these tourists to understand what's going on with them. And it's the reason the rates went up is that a bunch of tourists from the future are here, and the reason that they uh, are here specifically is that he and everyone he knows are about to die in a horrible catastrophe. Yes. And they're here to uh, watch it, uh, to witness. They've all been inoculated against the plague, and one of them's like an artist who's going to compose a symphony. Um, so obviously the tourists here are just fucking awful. Um yeah, and and the thing the thing that like it, it ultimately um, I would say Ryder is really interested in is the fact that it's it's not just like there is an appeal to the whole like oh we can't change history thing, um, but it's made clear that uh, what is really enforcing that is like the quote unquote the rules, um, the like uh, the status quo the of the. Yeah, of, of the Time Traveler's Society. Yeah, and um, I, I think we want to back off actually a little bit, because one of the things that happens repeatedly in the story is that the Time Travelers have a kind of utter confidence. They, uh, to the point that when one of them who is uh, relatively weird-looking and unattractive from the point of view of the, the main character, his time, the, the, you know, the contemporary, not time traveler characters, uh, gets into, like, an argument with a beautiful woman in the present, and it's very much a, like, you know, it's, it's a charisma off, right? Like, it's a very straightforward, who are you going to sympathize with? And there's this weird flip where her total, the time traveler's total confidence in her cultural norms and the fact that they are the future, that they are the inevitable result of the present... Uh, there's a line that gets uh, used a number of times from uh, Frederick Jameson, which is that science fiction makes uh, the contemporary world into the determinate future of the science fictional world, uh, that, or sorry, the determinate past of the science fictional world uh, in the same way that a historical novel makes the past the determinate past of the present world. That is to say, one of the pleasures or critical values of the historical novel is that it attempts to explain how you get from there to now or what continues from there to now it matters because it's in our past because we have that connection to it here the present matters because it's in the past of this future and the future has that kind of claim of progress of being able to overtake and sublate the present and so this weird-looking future person just wins the argument. The uh, the current-day person just suddenly feels really doesn't feel self-assured at all. Feels uh, like outmatched, like this, like the social outcast, despite being the you know, quote-unquote normal one. 
because the future is what's going to happen, because it has that kind of inevitability. And I thought that was really interesting because it's a representation of double consciousness, of the effect of the colonial gaze. And colonial tourism often does this, tourism in general often does this, to the people being colonized. That it's not just, oh, you're going to survive the plague, it's that your cultural understanding is devouring and uh, replacing and crushing this one for reasons that are fundamentally, you know, amoral. Yeah, yeah. Uh. And, uh, yeah, no, and then this is made in the story very explicitly not natural, but cultural. That uh, the specific line here, because it's not just that oh you can't change the past because of because uh, it will change because of the rules. It's specifically um, if one changes the past to quote the story, it changes the future too necessarily. The lines of probability are switched into new patterns, but it is extremely difficult and has never been allowed. The physiotemporal course tends to slide back to its norm always, and our time world is entirely to our liking. There may be a few malcontents there in the future, but they are not allowed the privilege of temporal travel. So it's very explicitly a cultural framework to preserve a particular physical arrangement of things that uh, is pleasurable, that is, you know, entirely to our liking as the colonial center, and that means the mass death that they can now watch in the colony, which is to say the past. Yeah. It's a very, um, honestly, as a, a as the end of the book, because there's no conclusion. This, yeah, this, this last is the end of the book. Yep, the yep. Of the book. It's it's pretty bleak, because um, I mean, in in the last paragraph, yet some things change remarkably little in the half century that separates Wells from Cutner and Moore, the authors of uh, Vintage Season. How does their time traveler's disavowal of responsibility differ from the arrogant disregard exercised by Wells's Martians or Dr. Moreau? Um, in their maintenance of the separation between themselves and their hosts, in the way that separation denies their hosts full contemporaneous humanity, there's all too little difference. And I, so... I'm going to be the, honest, why, why did you skip the middle sentence there? Sorry, I was not really thinking. Go ahead. The, the, the middle, middle sentence, sentence is... The time tourists seem more passive, like mere spectators and not active manipulators of the situation, but in their maintenance, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess, like, the the commentary being made here is something about, like, the shift from, you know, from the British Empire to American imperialism. Yeah, um, from the colonial era to, po to uh, neocolonialism. Uh, there's, there's various, or the post-colonial period, if you're talking about, like, literal colonialism, because, you know, there's... There's a lot of arguments about how to frame these, but in terms of what we're talking about here, it's literal colonialism to the post-colonial era, where there is still certainly, uh, you know, a hierarchy. There is still certainly uh, a, um, a gradient of power here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also just, you know, uh, like I was mentioning, the kind of question of, like, is this, is, is you know, what what's the critical potential of science fiction does it um you know does it have that i it feels like the end of the book is almost like despite not being a conclusion it feels as though it is conclusively saying no uh, even though obviously I obviously mean, vintage season is not supposed to be like a triumphal story about how cool these time travelers are like yeah i was about to say that like 
What you just said made it sound a bit like science fiction has not stopped colonialism on its own, and therefore... Okay, yeah, look. But but just rather that, like, it, it seems as though the ways... The, the, um, like, there's a question of, like, okay, so this book is discussing the emergence of science fiction. Like, what has happened since then? And... Uh, the the end of this last chapter does imply, like, while we are still rehashing the same questions that we were rehashing in the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, I think that from the examples given, it would seem, and I, I don't think these examples are precisely accurate, because I do think there's plenty of colonialism being just straightforwardly expressed in science fiction, it would seem that what's actually being said is that science fiction can continue to act as a commentary on these processes in the larger culture. Mm. Like, I, yeah, I think no, that's, that yeah. if you're reading Wells as the kind of commentary this book wants to make Wells, because this is a pretty pro-Wells book. I think, it, frankly, I don't think we've read anyone that's, like, actually significantly angry at Wells beyond, well, he didn't actually achieve, like, total uh, separation in class consciousness, etc. But, like, if we take Wells as a positive example that his War of the Worlds or his, you know, because he's being used as the theoretical model for this whole thing with the Mr. Um, guy whose name I didn't know before reading this book and has now gone completely out of my brain. I think uh, it's like uh, Bletsworthy. God, what a name. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Uh, yes. Yes, Bletsworthy. Uh if, if Wells is this kind of figure of commentary that he can if not totally, again, remove himself from his colonial position, he does produce these really useful science fictional distortions of it and discussions of it, then the ending is saying this is still a useful function and it's still something science fiction does, even in these later examples as we move out of the strict colonial period into the post-colonial period. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to make it clear, when I said that like the the it feels bleak, I don't think it's like a... Like, I do think that the, the the history of colonial and imperial exploitation is indeed bleak. Yeah. Um, so if the way that that uh, is something that science fiction discusses or something that underlies science fiction is bleak as well, then that's only, like, appropriate. Um, Actually, this is, I think, a really great point, because I said I wanted to come back to that question of root, uh, having, mm, gone, yes. having gone through the book. Because my, my question for you is, like, you say colonialism is something that underli underlies science fiction, that it's like a, a foundational element, that it's, it's because, and that's implied in the title, colonialism and the emergence of science fiction implies that one has to do with the other. But mm -hmm. I guess, given the model of a genre that this uses and the way it approaches things, do you feel that this does end up arguing that science fiction is colonial or is inherently a reaction to the colonial in some way? I mean, yeah, I do think that's what the book argues. Um, it, it, are are you asking? Are you? I mean, asking I'm asking I'm your opinion. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I sorry. I have it, thoughts it just, on this, but yeah, no. I, I you, mean, I you guess... just you literally phrased it as a question about what the book says, and I think yes. the book does say that. I mean, um, I the thing is, I'm. I think the book certainly says that in this period and later, it comments on. But the question of inherency is what I'm getting at here. Like, what is it to mm -hmm. say? science fiction is inherently 
colonial or is inherently built on colonialism? Is this a purely historical argument that science fiction emerges within the colonial context? Or is it, uh, because that, that seems a very straightforward argument of periodization. Here is where we say science fiction starts, and here is what was going on then and what is reflected in science fiction. But that's a different question from saying that science fiction is inherently colonial as a literature, like the idea that if you use the tropes and frames of science fiction, you're always interacting with this colonial rotation of the gaze, with the uh, with these questions of progress. And in fact, one of the science fiction theorists who gets uh, discussed as having a very generally, uh, quote, um, Thomas Clarison, the least fussy of all major scholars of science fiction when it comes to generic definitions, nonetheless insists that belief in progress is an absolute prerequisite for the formation of science fiction. Yeah, yeah. So, um, is it that progress is an inherently colonial concept and also inherent to science fiction? Or what? what is the causality by which it's inherent? Hmm. Because I think it's more I don't complicated. Know that this... I don't know that this book is making super clear claims about causality. Yeah, so um, th that's why I say, because you, you finish the book and you say, obviously it is saying that, you know, colonialism is inherent to science fiction. And what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is I think that that's a, there's a lot of ways that could be true, and I'm not sure which one the book is presenting beyond the purely historical one. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's a little challenging because it's not... I don't think it's necessarily, well, okay, something that the book does not seem to me to be doing is straightforwardly extending uh, what Saeed says about the novel to science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can imagine a book that would basically argue that as, um, you know, as colonialism creates the conditions for science fiction, science fiction then itself also like, creates the way colonialism thinks itself. Um, and I don't think this book is arguing that, and I think that'd be kind of hard to argue if only because of the, you know, the marginality of science fiction, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, I... Sorry, this was a hard one. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I am really trying to think about... Because I... Okay, here's what I'll say. I think the, the more sort of narrower... More narrower. Um, like, historical version of this argument that you're talking about, which is basically like, okay, science fiction arises in a colonial context and then continues to be influenced by its origins. Yeah. Um, or, you know, if you're not convinced that uh, science fiction starts in the 1870s, continues to be influenced by that period... Yeah. Um, continues also to be influenced by the colonial nature of earlier science fiction. Like, uh, you know, this this book is not about, um, uh, like, fantastic voyages, but, like, I think there is a fairly obvious, um, you know, arguments to be made about that. Um, but, right, um, I, I think, like, that historical argument... Uh, to me, it, it has, like, a theoretical corollary, right? It's not just, like, okay, obviously everything is influenced by its past, but, like, if science fiction is something structural, if science fiction is something theoretical, and it has this past, then, 
we need in that structure and theory to account for that past, right? Um, and that's not what this book is doing. Um, yeah, because but, it, it doesn't believe in a structural definition of science fiction. Yes. But I, I think, in as much as I do believe in science fiction as something structural, um, although I don't know that I could off the dome tell you what I think structurally science fiction is, um, mm-hmm. but I do think it's something structural. Um, and in as much as I'm broadly speaking convinced by this book, therefore I think I do have to believe that there's something colonial in that structure. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that does make sense. I just, I mean, very straightforwardly, I think that it's very easy to come out of a book like this that is this kind of historical uh, period uh, period uh, discussion that does cover uh, all of these different works, that has this, like, wealth of examples, and then go, yes, I believe the thing it is saying, but it can be harder to articulate what exactly that is than we'd expect because it's so tied up in its examples because its individual examples cover a bunch of different ground and a bunch of different uh, flavors of thinking. Um, And I think that uh, it's that kind of ambiguity about what exactly the statement uh, is that stuck with me. It's why I kind of wanted a conclusion beyond chapter five. I wanted to like, okay, how do we synthesize these these different elements? Is it just science fiction has historically expressed these uh these you know um ideological fantasies and that it's it you know uh that science fiction exposes what colonialism imposes you've got these uh fantasies rendered into novums into like specific uh figures if so i i wish that you had focused on the figures more completely that each chapter had been some particular set of figures like uh some of the chapters are and some of them are a little bit more open and uh multifarious um or at the very least i wish you'd sort of cataloged them at the end because then you can say here are the structural ways that science fiction continues to reproduce these ideas or comment on them or be influenced by them because this fantasy is what structures you know, the cyborg, although in this case it's the big-headed baby man from the far future, not what we would normally call a, a cyborg or like a Harrisonian cyborg or anything. So that's... Yeah, I... Sorry, go on. I, I, you know, I think that I agree with you there in that I would have liked to see a little bit more extension of this into, like, later science fiction, um, which is in some ways asking the book to bite off maybe more than it can chew. And that's um, what a conclusion is for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, like here is how I propose this could be applied into uh, into the future is, I think, a useful way to do it. Because right now, being perfectly frank, I can see ways that you could use this to make some academic arguments, to support some academic arguments. But if you're not talking about the specific, the, the period it's talking about, if you're not talking about early science fiction or even, you know, proto-science fiction, depending on where you set the, the beginning point of science fiction... It seems like its method would most lead towards talking about the reception of this colonial era science fiction in later periods, which is a is a useful term, but is relatively limited. Like, if I don't want to talk about Wells or London, I'm not sure this has given me uh, a ton to go on in terms of talking about the colonial uh, in present-day science fiction, contemporary science fiction. Yeah. No, I see what you mean. I... I think maybe in some ways we are asking this book to be theoretical and structural in a way that it just isn't. Yeah. You know? 
Um, like, I think it's allowed to be about the time period that it's about. Yeah, I guess for me, it's, this is basically, I think, an ambiguity of the title. The emergence of science fiction implies, and then, you know, this defines or shapes the further development of science fiction in knowable ways, that this, by knowing the root, you will know the branch. But I think that you could also see it as pure periodization. Colonialism and this period of science fiction, and if you can develop how that affects it later, whether it continues to be these particular fantasies, whether the ideology of the ideological fantasy of progress continues to be central to science fiction this will not comment on that you can do that work yourself yeah yeah and i mean you know i think in some ways any book any like academic work has as a as an obvious conclusion and you can go apply this to other things right you can build on this oh sure sure argument um, so I don't my, know how much we truly needed him to, like, explicitly state that. I mean, my, my um, position here is basically that the, the structural, formal, or even just the sort of cataloging element at the end would be uh, useful precisely for that, for making it easier for other people to apply this and use it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think this book could have been more portable. Yeah. Um. Ah, but no, in general, I, you know, I think it was a really interesting read. I think I got a lot out of reading it and uh, not always necessarily agreeing with it, but always uh, finding it useful or insightful. Uh, I certainly don't mean this sort of uh, point at the end here uh, to be a challenge to that. I just think that the way that it's easy to talk about this book having read it is, you know, now we can see how colonialism is present in science fiction, and I think that it's more complicated. Yeah, no, I see that. Um, I think it is, it, it, if you wanted to, um, you know, I think the way that this book talks about the colonial gaze, I think, you know, the introduction really is where the most um, portable parts of the book are. Um, but I think you have to do some work to excavate it. Yeah. Excavate those parts. Yeah. Um, but also, like, that's, uh, even a book that really makes itself reusable, um, is, you can't, it, I think it, it would be a little bit irresponsible, um, to take up a book and be like, all right, you told me that this, uh, part of your argument was, like, again, portable, that I, I could pick it up and use it in a different context, and so I shall, um, you know, you can't just take everything at face value like that. Um, sure. So, like, again, yeah, the book could have made that easier for us, but also I don't necessarily know that um, you can, like, you always have to do the work to recontextualize something. So the fact that the book doesn't kind of lead you up to that is not a an absolute thing. <sighs> That's all I'm saying. Sure, sure. I never said anything was like an absolute failing. Okay, that I, I, I'm just trying. I I agree with you. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh. I agree with you. I'm just, I guess, um, I don't know. Um, there's a critique where you say this book is something is not something that I wanted, and there's a critique where you say this book like failed at its aims. You know. Sure, I. 
My actual critique is, I think, better framed as... Give me a second. Uh, I think that it is easy to read from the introduction and the way it presents itself a version of this that it isn't actually doing on the back end, where it is presenting a way of reading science fiction that will allow for, that, you know, is, is organized around these uh, colonial fantasies. And I think that the actual case studies, the actual later sections, don't really lend themselves to developing in the reader that sort of ability and that that perspective in a way that the introduction is sort of setting up. And mm. I think that that development is in many ways what one who someone who wants to apply a book is looking for, that ability to, uh, having gone through these case studies, apply it themselves. And I think that it's very easy to come out of a book, and again, I, I don't really want to say this is a failing of the book, or even a failing of being what I wanted it to be. I'm saying that I think it's very easy to read this as though it has given you that analysis for you to use. Basically, I think this book looks more portable with less work than it actually is. Do you see mm -hmm. what I mean? No, I do see what you mean, and I think that's a good point. Like, you know what I this think is, is this is why this was sort of pressed by my by you saying this has revealed the root, the like the origin of science fiction in colonialism, and I'm like, that sounds way more portable than I think it actually is. Yeah, no, you're right. You're totally right about that. Um, something else that occurs to me as like a maybe a reason why you are why I feel this why way. I agree. Why I agree with you, but I didn't think about it this way until you really pointed it out, is that, like, you teach and I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, that um, might that might be it. Like, So I think that you have somewhere in your mind an idea of, like, if I gave this to my students, could they use it? Oh, no, way? God, no, no. I Listen, I'm teaching, like, <laughs> intro literature. This is not... Well, okay, yeah, but... <laughs> but it... <laughs> All right, yeah, so when we talk about your students specifically, this might be kind of too high level for them. And also, probably not that many of them are interested in, like, Colonialism obscure science fiction. science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Or science fiction from, like, 1890. Oh, God, um, no, no. Uh, but but <laughs> you see what I mean about pointing out that, like, yeah, that yeah, you're that a teacher and I'm not. The way, the way I'm approaching it is uh, is very much like this is for doing a certain kind of thing. And that kind of thing involves, you know, turning it into tools, turning it into approaches, making it portable, uh, finding a way to do these things. Whereas I think that reading it as fundamentally not like a toolbox, but rather a, you know, a history, a uh, an image of a certain time and period, absolutely no complaints there. It's really good at doing that in the way it's doing it. Again, I think there's some things about ambiguities in there that are interesting to talk about, but are not criticisms fundamentally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know what this would be super portable for would be if you just wanted to talk about H.G. Wells. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you want to talk about H.G. Wells, I would absolutely recommend this. Um, I think it's, like, uh, and also if you want to talk about, like, the Lost Worlds, or, like, or Lost Race Fantasies, or, like, uh, if you want to talk about uh, Big-Headed Man Babies from the Far Future— there's a number yeah. of these particular figures and their, like, origins in Victorian-era colonial discourse and their particular, like, uh, reflexive criticisms and so on. All really cool, all really well presented, and so those particular figures are definitely portable in useful ways. 
Yeah, and I, I don't want to dismiss that as being something useful that people can do, you know? Oh, Even no, absolutely. You're it's totally clearly, correct. It's it's The thing is, it's not really my project, and it's not really your project. Um, That's so. fair. It's also, I think, part of it is me going, okay, but we don't really have a lot of big-headed man-babies from the far future in science fiction anymore, except when it's intentionally parodying this period. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Like, some of these figures, if if these figures are the, like, conventions and residue of science fiction's colonial emergence, some of them have fallen out of use. And then the question, I guess, would be, have they, do they have inheritors? Do they have continuities? Or have they actually just become mothballed? And they're only going to reappear in people who are either thoughtlessly reproducing the colonial era science fiction or parodying it. Yeah, yeah. And if, dear listener, you are in fact aware of any modern examples of the big-headed man-baby from the far future being done, like, totally unironically, uh, please do let me know. Oh god, there's one- You know those are gonna be, like, the most noxious, like, right-wing science fiction, though, right? Like- And Gravity Falls, I just realized. (laughs) It has a literal time baby. Now, to be fair, that's, that's a literal baby. Like, it is playing with that thing where the far future is ruled by a weird- big-headed baby thing but like also gravity falls did do that so the parody certainly is alive and well yeah yeah oh i'm ready i'm ready to call it a call same this has been this has been a long one but i've really enjoyed it thank you yeah thank you and uh dear listeners stay cognitively estranged